Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. Artur Davis represented Alabama's 7th Congressional District for eight years as a Democrat. He held leadership roles in the party and was one of the first members of Congress to endorse President Barack Obama in 2008. Today he joins us at the Heritage Foundation to talk about his evolution and and transformation. (laughs) Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. You have said that uh, the Democratic Party squandered opportunities in 2008. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? I think of the many people, 53% of the country, who voted for Barack Obama, A significant number of them did not vote for him for ideological reasons. A significant number, frankly, liked the history that we're making as a country. And they liked the fact that Barack Obama, during his entire early political career, talked a lot about the country coming together that inspired a lot of people, no matter their philosophy. There was an opportunity if President Obama had governed as the kind of candidate he ran as. Instead, in my opinion, but also the opinions of many other mains people in this country, he governed, has governed, as someone who wants to very much grow the size of government and who believes as a philosophical matter that's the best approach. Now, one of the policies that the Obama administration pursued, you actually voted against, was this health care law. Uh, it's currently before the U.S. Supreme Court. We're expecting a decision any day. What troubled you most uh, about Obamacare? Too big, too expensive, too unpredictable, and it goes much further than it needs to. Uh, I think that combination of things is what troubled most of the American people. The day the law passed... It was actually more popular than it is now, and it wasn't that popular then. We're learning now that businesses all over the country are feeling pressure to stop providing health insurance. This is in the aftermath of Obamacare. So, once again, a plan that was proposed as this will help people who need it but won't affect you has turned out to be something very, very different. Do you support full repeal of Obamacare? 
I would like to see full repeal of Obamacare because it's too unworkable and I'd like to see it struck down. And I believe the court will and should strike it down, start over. You've recently become a supporter of voter ID laws. Can you talk about why uh, you believe these are so valuable to our country? Just basic common sense. Uh, we're sitting here in Washington, D.C. This is actually one of the few buildings I've been in that doesn't require a photo ID. Uh, most every building does in this city, public or private. The Department of Justice that's in court right now litigating against voter ID laws in three states. You don't make it very far past the front door without a voter ID sign. I've talked to news organizations that have been asked skeptically about my opinion and you can't even get in their buildings without having a photo ID. Why not have people prove they're who they say they are well, when they walk in to vote? Critics, of course, say it disenfranchises some people. Do you believe that that's not true? I represented a predominantly African-American district for eight years, and Alabama had some form of voter ID law that whole time. I never encountered, in an African-American district, never encountered a single person who said to me, oh, Mr. Davis, I went to the polls and they asked me to present some kind of ID, and I was just so intimidated by it, I didn't know what to do, and I turned around and walked out. Holder is pursuing voter ID cases in, in certain states. Uh, he's also facing some tough questions from Congress these days about Operation Fast and Furious. How would you assess his tenure as Attorney General? Well, it's very hard to understand Fast and Furious because I never got to work in the high confines of the Department of Justice, but I was just a line assistant U.S. Attorney in Montgomery, Alabama. I did a lot of drug and gun cases, and there was always one basic rule. You never let guns or drugs walk. And you never set up, even when you had to do your undercover operations, you never let the bad guys leave with real guns or real drugs. Otherwise, you were contributing to crime yourself. If I got that as a 28, 29-year-old assistant U.S. attorney, and that was a bedrock proposition, I don't see how people much higher up the food chain missed it. Thanks so much for joining us at the Heritage Thanks Foundation. Thanks for having me. For the Heritage Foundation, I'm Rob Louie. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, December 30th, 2016. So I have been told this is our fourth study session on Gwen Eiffel, the late Gwen Eiffel's The Breakthrough, Politics and Race in the Age of Obama. Uh, this we're picking up uh, in chapter six. Uh, chapter six is titled Legacy Politics, and she covers a lot of different people. We heard about uh, Jesse Jackson Jr. Uh, last week, in addition to uh, some of the other non-white black politicians whose fathers uh, were also in office. Uh, Harold Ford Jr. was also in that group. Uh, we're going to be picking up with the Meekses uh, this week. Uh, the clip that we heard at the beginning, uh, that was Artur Davis. Uh, he was covered uh, in the book as well. Uh, we talked about him last week. All of Chapter 5 is about Artur Davis. He was trying to become the first black governor in the state of Alabama. Uh, he lost in the primary, Democratic primary, in 2010 for that election, uh, a couple or a year after this book was published. In 2012, he switched to the Republican Party, and you heard his dissenting view about why he became a detractor of President Obama after he at first vigorously supported him and uh, was looking to even ride that uh, wave uh, to success in becoming governor of Alabama. Just uh, fascinating. And in fact, uh, Artur Davis he attempted to switch back and to rejoin the Democratic Party after bolting for the Republicans in 2012. Just astonishing. Uh, I will stop there.
This is audio segment number one, Gwen Eiffel, The Breakthrough, Politics and Race in the Age of Obama, Context of White Supremacy. Miami Nice, The Meeks. Kendrick Meek was a young Florida state senator when he made his first significant mark on electoral politics in January 2000. The issue was affirmative action, and the target was Republican Governor Jeb Bush. Meek and fellow Democratic state lawmaker Tony Hill wanted to kill Bush's plan to replace the state's higher education system's racial preferences with a plan to guarantee admission to high school seniors who graduated in the top 20% of their classes. Bush called it One Florida. Meek and Hill opted for a 1960s protest tactic neither was old enough to have actually witnessed. They would stage a sit-in at the governor's Tallahassee office. It lasted 25 hours. As it happened, what ensued was a clash between two men who benefited from the politics of inheritance. Jeb Bush, the brother of the man who would become president later that year after a fractious electoral recount in Florida, was the scion of one of the nation's most dominant political dynasties. His father, George H.W. Bush, was a one-term president from 1989 to 1993, and his brother, George W. Bush, would go on to serve two terms of his own from 2001 to 2009. Meek's own political heritage was nowhere near as illustrious, but it may have played a more critical role in shaping his ambitions. His mother, Carrie Meek, was a member of Congress from Miami from 1993 to 2003. Indeed, the former Florida A&M linebacker and highway patrolman's introduction to politics came through working to elect his mother in 1979. The party elders in Miami had discouraged her from running for the state legislature to replace another legendary black woman, Gwen Cherry, who had been killed in a tragic car accident. They had a man in mind for the job. What they forgot was that I had been a college professor for many years and I had taught all the people of voting age during my tenure at the college, Carrie Meek told me. Her son joined in the effort, directing traffic, recruiting volunteers, and doing whatever else needed to be done. He was 13 years old at the time. We ran and we did the little campaign signs and we even drew them up, he recalled of the Bare Bones campaign. She worked at the community college, and I mean, with no money whatsoever, she ended up winning that race. She was able to pull it together, but it was not like she was recruited to pull it together. Meek, too, learned politics literally at his mother's knee or perched on her hip. She remembers lugging him along to community meetings while she fought to desegregate the community's schools and colleges. The politics of it all just sort of seeped in. He had a knack for it, she told me. He really did. The younger Meek promptly followed his mother's path in 1994, winning a seat in the Florida State Legislature at the age of 27. When Carrie Meek decided to retire from Congress in 2002, Kendrick was there once again, making use of the family name and Tallahassee connections to step onto the path she'd cleared for him. I know there will be other candidates, the 76-year-old Congresswoman said at the time, but there's just one Meek. There were no other candidates. Meek made a beeline for Washington. He became a member of Congress with outstanding for election, said David Besides, who studies black politics at the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies. Not only did he not have a primary opponent, he didn't have a general election opponent. His mother usually didn't have a general election opponent. 
he actually became a member of Congress without having to run. But before he could get to Washington, Meek had to make his mark in Tallahassee. On that Tuesday night in 2000, Meek and Hill were joined at their sit-in by dozens of students and lawmakers who crowded the halls at the state capitol. When reporters arrived to cover the protest, Governor Bush was widely quoted as telling an aide to kick their asses out, an ill-advised retort he subsequently apologized for. I'm a sitting member of the state Senate, Meek recalled. This is not what you do. But at the same time, I wouldn't have been able to sleep well knowing that Governor Jeb Bush was doing away with affirmative action through executive order. Watching Meek on Capitol Hill today, it is hard to believe he was once such an upstart, buttoned into handsome suits and looking every inch the Washington insider. He is a well-liked junior lawmaker whose best friend in the House is an equally handsome white Democrat, Tim Ryan from Wisconsin. He has been known to share a fine cigar with Republican Congressman Mario Diaz-Balart, another Florida State House alumnus. He makes a point of attending every weekly meeting of the Congressional Black Caucus and fiercely embraces the responsibility of representing the needs of a district that is 57% Black. He is also co-chairman of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's 30-something working group. And because so many of the residents of his South Florida district were born in Haiti, he concentrates on issues affecting that Caribbean nation. But unlike many members of his generational cohort, Meek resisted appeals to endorse Barack Obama for president, instead becoming a useful and vocal defender of Hillary Clinton, appearing frequently on television on her behalf. And when Bill Clinton got in trouble for making what were widely interpreted as racially dismissive criticisms of Obama, Meek rose to his defense as well. Throughout the primary process, Meek resisted the Illinois senator's entreaties. Barack's conversation with me was something like, you know, if you come on board, we want to make you a significant player in the campaign. If I do well, you do well in the future. I'm going to cut the path for you, Meek said, recalling the conversation. But he had a different response. I think Carrie Meek cut the path for me. On this decision, mother and son parted ways. Carrie Meek desperately wanted to support Obama, if only because she was excited at the possibility of electing a black president. But she initially kept silent out of deference to her son's political decision. I asked him, what are you going to do? Because I really like Obama. I could feel the beating of the drums and all that crazy stuff, she told me, laughing. And he said, Mama, I'm going to support Hillary. We both had some affinity for Hillary because we knew how strongly her husband had supported us, but all along, I have to share this with you, I was an Obama fan. Once again, the 2008 presidential campaign showcased the generational divide between parents and children who agree about almost everything else. Carrie Meek admits she was drawn to Obama because she felt his success would demonstrate black power, a phrase it would never occur to her son to use. I don't think they look so much as deeply as we did toward color, she said. Her son agreed. Just because Senator Obama is black doesn't necessarily mean that every black person elected or non-elected must be because of the race thing on the bandwagon with him, he said. In the end, Kendrick Meek was the odd man out on the national political stage in 2008, but he kept busy building a base on Capitol Hill as a member of the powerful House Ways and Means Committee. He still carries his mother's congressional identification card in his wallet, and he is casting an eye on the possibility of running for statewide office back home in Florida. 
Even though he did not endorse Obama in the primary, he studied his historic run carefully. Everyone has a balance beam to walk, Meek said. But when you're black, you're in uniform. You're not undercover. Laughing, he gestured at the gold pin on his lapel that identifies him as a member of Congress. When I take this pin off and I walk down Pennsylvania Avenue, I'm just another black man. The Family Business, The Mallory's when Mark Mallory was 12 years old, he used to accompany his father to work at the State House. Representative William L. Mallory spent 28 years in Columbus, Ohio, and when he took his youngest son to committee meetings, he would grill him later about who said what. That was Mallory's first taste of politics. His father also had been introduced to politics at the age of 12, when his mother's physician brought him along to political club meetings and let him listen in. William Mallory says he never meant to create a family dynasty. It just worked out that way. When the time approached for the elder Mallory to step aside, his five sons had a meeting. Two were judges, one was the vice mayor of a Cincinnati suburb, and the youngest, Mark, was a mid-level manager at the public library. A daughter, Denise, who works for the Ohio Lottery, is the only one uninterested in elective politics. Someone, the sons decided, was going to have to plan to succeed their father when he gave up his seat in the Ohio State Legislature, where he was currently the well-respected Democratic floor leader. I said, well, I think you're right. Which one of you is going to do it, Mark Mallory said when his brother Dale took him aside. Unbeknownst to baby brother Mark, the die had already been cast. At his siblings' insistence, he went to his father to tell him he had reluctantly been recruited to take over the family business. To his surprise, his father did not immediately embrace the idea. He looked at me and he said, well, why do you want to do that, Mallory recalled. And that caught me off guard because I was expecting him to be excited. You know, my son's going to follow in my footsteps and this is a great thing. The elder Mallory remembers it differently. Mark, he said, wanted him to step aside before the election so the son could be appointed to replace the father without first standing for election. I said, no, we can't do that, because if I do that, people will always say you could have never won this seat on your own, William Mallory lectured his son. They will always say I gave it to you. So young Mark got the third degree. Was he doing this because he wanted to do something for himself or because he wanted to do something for the people he would represent? He wanted to know that my intentions were correct, Mark says now, recalling the conversation with his father. It took another three years before the senior Mallory was ready to step aside, and there was nothing ceremonial or torch-passing about it. Mark read about his father's decision to resign his seat in the newspaper. I prevailed, and he was elected on his own, William Mallory, now 77 years old, told me. And even though he was elected on his own, people still say I gave him the seat. Mark Mallory, now 46, spent two terms in the Ohio House and another term in the state Senate. While there, he sponsored a resolution for the Buckeye State to belatedly ratify the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which granted full citizenship to former slaves. He left the legislative post to run and win election as Cincinnati mayor in 2005, becoming the city's 68th chief executive and the first African-American elected directly by the voters. During that campaign, I kept hearing the same thing over and over again, the mayor said, ticking off the objections to the campaign he ran against city councilman David Pepper. 
Mallory, you're not qualified. You haven't been on city council. You don't know city government. You've been away at the state house, so you don't know the issues that are important in Cincinnati. You will not be able to raise the kind of money that it takes in order to win the mayor's office. You have 50% name recognition. People don't know you. They don't know who you are. This is an uphill battle for you. Why don't you just, you know, step aside and wait for a time later? Well, he wasn't stepping aside. In this, he says now, he was like Obama was in 2008. There were people in this city who took a chance and said, I'm going to go with a message of hope. I'm going to go with the intangible, with this Mallory guy. Mallory beat Pepper 52% to 48%. My father never said to any of us, I want you in politics, the mayor told me of his unusually political family. The things that we got from my dad and my mother were, you have to do something. Mark Mallory also says he is keenly aware that African-American politicians have a different road to hoe now than they did when his father first went to Columbus. Back in the old days, when you had a dispute with someone, you didn't do character assassination like you do these days, William Mallory told me, chuckling. You just punched them out. But to this day, the younger Mallory will not set foot in the Columbus Athletic Club because it once did not allow his father to dine there. The elder Mallory cut his teeth in politics, knocking on doors and registering voters in Cincinnati's largely black 18th Ward. The younger Mallory, who did not have to work nearly as hard, sees his role as dramatically different. Instead of advocating for, say, voting rights as a way of helping a largely African-American constituency, Mayor Mallory is convinced he can do as much or more for his African-American constituents by advocating for health care housing, and education. By the time I got to office, there were an additional set of issues that people expected you to work on as an African-American, he said. Mark Mallory's was a sought-after endorsement for Barack Obama. Unlike other breakthrough elected officials around the country, he did not embrace the black candidate right away. Instead, he conducted a high-profile political dalliance with both Obama and Hillary Clinton. Ultimately, he said, he decided to support Obama because he saw echoes of his own experience running for mayor. He endorsed Obama before 13,000 supporters at a late February mega-rally in Cincinnati. Now, after three years in office, Mayor Mallory is happily fielding rumors that he might become state treasurer or state attorney general or follow Obama to Washington. His only plan, he says, is to run for re-election. But he is happy to let the rumors live a life of their own. I figure, as a politician, he said, you really shouldn't, you know, promote them or kill them unnecessarily. It is not entirely shocking that sons and daughters follow their fathers and mothers into the family business. Nobody questions the four children when they want to go into the car business, said Essex County, New Jersey freeholder Donald Payne Jr., whose father is a member of Congress. The examples you have growing up are naturally going to cause you to lean that way. And when it comes to my father, why wouldn't I want to be like him? In 2006, Payne was one of two sons of Newark's black political establishment elected to the city council. Ron Rice Jr., who followed in his father's footsteps onto the city council, split with his father politically when the son decided to align himself with another young leader, Newark Mayor Cory Booker. This was particularly significant because the elder Rice was Booker's opponent. I ran for city council against my own father's judgment and without his support, the younger Rice told me candidly. 
I ran with Cory Booker against his support against him, to be frank. But it wasn't because I loved Cory Booker more than my dad. It was because my dad's generation told him constantly to wait your turn, wait your turn. But legacy politics does not always take. John James, the son of former Newark Mayor Sharp James, ran for city council the same year and lost. And although Representative Carolyn Cheeks Kilpatrick, a Michigan Democrat, was able to pass her political genes on to her son, Detroit Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick, he became ensnared in troubling behavior that ultimately tarnished the family name. At the height of the 2008 presidential campaign, the younger Kilpatrick was so enmeshed in a lurid sex scandal that even he admitted his endorsement would not help Obama. He's running a very smart campaign, Kilpatrick conceded, and his campaign is not to be walking, holding hands, singing Kumbaya with Kwame Kilpatrick. True enough, when Kilpatrick was eventually forced to relinquish the mayor's job and sent to prison for obstruction of justice, Obama was far away, and Carolyn Cheeks Kilpatrick's political legacy was extinguished. Sandpaper scratches. Almost all parents can enumerate ways their offspring can disappoint, but in politics, the family name is the coin of the realm. It opens doors like a charm, but it falls to the legatee not to abuse the advantage or get sunk by the baggage. Chapter 7. Cory Booker The real test of leadership has never been who can get people to follow them, We've got charismatic leaders who get followed a lot. The real test of leadership is to motivate people to be leaders themselves and to carry the burden. Cory Booker It's one thing to win an election. It is another thing to govern. No one knows that more keenly than Cory Booker, the young and energetic mayor of Newark, New Jersey, who is the living embodiment of a warning parents have long issued to their children. Be careful what you ask for. Booker, with his six-foot-three football player's build, big eyes, shiny pate, and strikingly youthful demeanor, had managed only 13 months in office before the truth of those words came back to haunt him. Four students were hanging out, listening to music on a playground in the city's Ivy Hill neighborhood on a Saturday night before they headed off to Delaware State University in the fall. One by one, three were shot and killed execution-style. The fourth was gravely wounded. The violent and apparently unprovoked attacks on Terrence Ariel, 18, Deshaun Harvey, 20, Eofemi Hightower, 20, who were all killed, and Terrence's sister Natasha, 19, who was shot but survived, shocked the city, the state, and the nation. Mere months later, it became fodder for an episode of television's Law and Order franchise. The mayor's Blackberry started going off after midnight. By the time the sun rose, it had become clear he had a full-fledged municipal crisis on his hands. Within days, five people had been arrested for the murders. One of them surrendered personally to Booker. Less than a month before, the new mayor had ordered the city's flags lowered, to commemorate the 40th anniversary of the six-day riot that virtually burned the city to the ground in 1967. Now a shocked city saw that not enough had changed. Recidivism was rampant. 11, 12, and 13-year-olds were being released from the Essex County Juvenile Detention Center with nowhere to go but right back to jail. 
That's absurdity, the mayor fumed to me. That's absurdity. We pay a whole lot of money to warehouse them, but we're not going to invest to keep them from going back again? The schools were crippled, and the schoolyard killings brought the year's total of homicides in the city of 280,000 to 60. Soon enough, Newark would surpass the previous year's miserable murder rate. Into this mess walked Cory Booker, 37 years old, incredibly bright, and almost unbearably optimistic. That is, until Terrence, Deshaun, and Iofemi were killed. At the funeral of one, a group called Morticians That Care displayed signs reading, How many body bags will it take? For Booker, the killings and the outpouring of grief that followed were transformative. He took to his adopted city's pulpits in what sounded like a primal scream of frustration. Get this evil out of my city, he cried at one funeral at New Hope Baptist Church. How dare I or any other Newarker crumble to the ground? How dare we give in to this fear? How dare people turn on their brothers and attack them, blame them? For the time being, the new Newark he had been promising was obscured by old demons. The new downtown development, the new leadership in City Hall, none of it seemed to matter. People walked up to Booker on the street, screaming at him that he had blood on his hands. This really hurts, he told a New York Times reporter at the time. I still believe we're going to move the city forward, but this is a powerful blow. This was going to be a summer we were going to brag about. This overshadows everything. In perhaps the most shocking way possible, Booker was being forced to cope with the realities of urban leadership. I think the murders in the city were the cold reality for him, one advisor told me, that he had to stop being superficial and roll up his sleeves and really get down to the work. Another political ally found herself on the defensive when Newarkers blamed the mayor for the periodic spikes in violence. I said, he's not Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, City Council President Mildred Crump told me. He cannot see through steel girders and concrete to see that crime is taking place and fly through the air and prevent it. He can't be everywhere, so it's not fair to blame him. And violent crime was just one part of the challenge. By the end of that already awful month, Booker would be forced to deal with another big city mayor's dilemma, less shocking but no less unappetizing, laying off 200 city workers as part of a plan to save $12.5 million. The city was struggling under the weight of a $180 million budget shortfall, and his critics, who it seems had been lying in wait all along, were calling for his head. When Booker assumed his chief executive role at Newark City Hall in 2006, he was surrounded by a halo of approval, not only from the streets of this tired East Coast city, but also from pundits and politicians around the country. He'd fought hard for the job, and he knew when he won that he was inheriting, among other things, a city with more than its share of entrenched difficulties, including the fact that one in three of its residents subsists below the poverty line. The reality of it all dealt a severe blow to the urban savior storyline that had sprung up around Booker, who was surely the only mayor ever to be featured in an Oscar-nominated documentary. The first time Booker tried for the mayor's office, he lost. Actually, in the political sense, he was mugged. That was the story of the 2002 documentary Street Fight. Booker was the outsider, the kid with a Yale Law degree and all-American tight ends confidence and a big mouth. 
He'd been president of the senior class in both high school and at Stanford University. In between Stanford and Yale Law, he'd gone off to Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. Mayor Sharp James, who had held the city's reins for 20 years in a 36-year municipal career, was not about to willingly hand over his Broad Street office to an outsider, a snot-nosed kid. James's backers trafficked extensively in rumor-mongering about the new upstart. He was really white, he was Jewish, he was gay. Worse, he didn't really live in Newark. None of this was true, but whisper campaigns don't necessarily have to be. Sharp James, who in 2008 would be convicted for shady real estate dealings and sentenced to 27 months in prison, had had bigger names than Cory Booker for lunch. Booker, the child of a gilded, virtually all-white suburb, was an easy target. He possessed a distinguished and distinctly non-ghetto pedigree, including the Stanford-Yale-Oxford triple threat. Newark hardly seemed the place someone with Booker's options might choose to land. Steve D'Amico, a New Jersey political strategist who worked for James in that first campaign, figured Booker was a fairly easy mark. He decided to brand the young outsider as a carpetbagger. It didn't take a lot of doing to figure out which of the voters were susceptible to that message and to get across to them that Corey was someone who was not to be trusted, that he was not of the city, D'Amico told me. The strategy worked. Slapped down by James in 2002, Booker retreated to the city council and prepared for a comeback four years later. He won in 2006 in no small part because James, who had decided to step aside, was no longer his opponent. And this time around, D'Amico's firm was working for Booker, not against him. Booker's old foe decided to use what he'd learned in defeating Booker in 2002 to Booker's advantage in 2006. We basically said to Corey, you can't make this campaign about you, D'Amico said. He was already going down that path. Corey was already constructing a campaign around himself, which is his tendency. He sort of gravitates to that naturally. We felt that if he was going to make a real connection to the voters in the city and overcome some of that suspicion, which was still hounding him a little bit from 2002, he had to really speak to voters and make the campaign about them and not about him. It was very, very clear that 2006 was going to be different from 2002, that their hunger for change was greater. The city's voters finally seemed to be tiring of the old ways, James's hand-picked successor, Ronald Rice Sr., ran hard. During the campaign, the New York Times posted a photo on its website of a flyer taped to a table in Rice's campaign office that read, Warning, do not vote Booker. This Nazi Negro Republican must go. Other political possibilities were dangled in front of Booker. I had everyone from the governor down to the local council people working against me, threatening people who even wanted to try to write me a check he told law school students at Harvard's class day. But Booker clocked Rice, clobbering him with 72% of the vote. Two years later, five years after James defeated Booker, the former mayor returned for the ceremonial opening of the new downtown arena. Booker was the only one to acknowledge the now-disgraced former mayor's presence. The two former rivals hugged. At his inauguration, Booker declared that Newark would lead our nation in an urban transformation. But it took him a while to fully grasp the depth of the city's inferiority complex. Newarkers have this sense that their city was abandoned and that the only people who benefited lived outside the city, he said during a talk in his suburban hometown of Harrington Park. 
They have this belief that these people are going to come back from over the hills and take over. Even a year later, when the first signs of that transformation were realized, with the opening of the city's new $375 million, 18,500-seat arena, an ESPN hockey analyst who had never been there told a national audience to stay away from downtown Newark. Quote, especially if you got a wallet or anything because the area around the building is awful. Transforming attitudes, Booker was to discover, is even tougher than transforming downtowns. One unlikely ally is the son of the man he defeated, City Councilman Ron Rice Jr. The younger Rice was as interested as Booker in knocking down a few political walls in Newark, but he knew his friend's task was even more daunting than his own. Corey wasn't born in Newark, said Rice, whose family has lived in Newark for three generations. He wasn't raised in Newark. And Newark, like many other cities, is very xenophobic. And I even kowtowed to that a little bit myself. Look at my resume. I always say I'm a third-generation Newarker. It gives me street cred in a way that Corey didn't necessarily have and struggles, I think, on some level still to have in Newark. Booker says his move to Newark was as much a calling as a choice. He grew up in that part of New Jersey where homes are widely spaced and most of the people in them are white. In order to move into Harrington Park, his parents, a pair of IBM executives, hired a white couple to pose as them. And they dragged their sons to civil rights rallies. Dinner table conversation in the Booker household was as likely to be about sit-ins and protests as about what the two Booker boys had done at school that day. No one was more shocked than Carrie and Carolyn Booker when their son Corey chose to use his suburban upbringing and elite education to save Newark, of all places. His father, born in the mountains of North Carolina, expected him to go make money on Wall Street. His mother, whose schoolteacher father was paid in crops before they left Louisiana for Detroit, hoped, and still hopes, that he will find a good woman and settle down. Maybe that way he wouldn't spend every night roaming the streets with his security detail, looking to roust drug dealers. But the Bookers have thrown themselves into what they now see as their son's mission. Along the way, they say they have discovered how deep the city's problems go and how entrenched its politics are. The sense of abandonment of poor black people in this city was stronger than I think I had ever seen anywhere, Carolyn says. Now, Booker's parents travel from their Georgia home at least once a month to work the streets of Newark on their son's behalf. We think there's so much promise here, Carolyn says. On the day we met, they breezed into the mayor's office fresh from visiting a nursing home, where Carrie Booker had cheekily advised senior citizens on the wisdom of using condoms. When they're not in Newark, they spend their days worrying about the son who jumps out of bed in the middle of the night to rush to crime scenes or invites ex-offenders to live under his roof to offer them a second chance. He spent the early hours of one Christmas Eve touring police stations, dressed in a gray hooded sweatshirt. It's their fault, he says with a shrug. That's how they raised me. Carolyn Booker raised two boys, Corey and his elder brother, Carrie Jr. From the start, Carrie, now an educator in Memphis, was the easier of the two. If you said, Carrie, sit in that chair and don't move and I'll be back in a few minutes, I gotta do a few things, he would sit there, Carolyn told me, sitting with her husband one wintry day while her son worked nearby in his city hall office. If you said to Corey, sit in that chair, I'll be back in a few minutes, I've got to do something, you know, 
Corey would just look at you and laugh as if to say, you know I'm not going to sit in this chair. He would say, why? Her husband piped up. Corey was the child who saw the world as a big question mark, she continued, as something to explore and to examine and to engage you in a conversation about why things had to be this way. My parents used to tell me as a young kid that we were a country that was formed in perfect ideals, but a savagely imperfect reality, Cory Booker said. You had people that were enslaved and in chains, seeing the most horrible and heinous realities, but yet somehow they saw freedom and they saw liberty. Booker talks like this all the time, in perfect and eloquent loops that leave you nodding in amazement. That's what happened the first time I met him, in 2006, at the Community Tabernacle of Deliverance Church in Stamford, Connecticut. He'd only been mayor for a matter of months, but had been persuaded to come north to campaign for Senator Joseph Lieberman, the embattled Connecticut Democrat who was at the time fighting a losing battle for his party's renomination. Lieberman had gone from being his party's history-making vice presidential nominee in 2000 to persona non grata in his own party six years later. He supported the Iraq War and would not back off. Later, he famously endorsed John McCain over his own party's nominee, Barack Obama. Booker had no business in the middle of the Connecticut mess in 2006, but Lieberman was among the string of national party luminaries who had made their way to New Jersey to help Booker. The new mayor, with his steadily rising national profile, was willing to repay the favor. When I've called on Senator Lieberman to help me, when I've asked him to stand up before, he has stood strong, Booker told a summer Sunday crowd. When it came to issues that affected me and my city, getting guns off streets, helping putting more police on, countless times in health care, countless times with the people I serve, he has stood with me. Booker could not have known that just up the interstate that Sunday in Hartford, Veteran black Democrat Maxine Waters, a California congresswoman, was leading Lieberman's challenger, Ned Lamont, on a vigorous Sunday morning black church tour of her own. Waters, you see, had never forgiven Lieberman for seeming to waffle on affirmative action. And it was not the last time Booker and Waters would be on opposite sides. He supported Obama in 2008, even giving his chief of staff a leave of absence to work for Obama in the general election. Water supported Clinton in the primaries, a foreshadowing of the establishment versus upstart dynamic that linked Booker to other new generation politicians. I think it's generational as much as anything else, said D'Amico, the political strategist. I think that actually this has been a great advantage for him because I think a lot of the people who are supporting him support Barack, whether they're the same people, the same type, the same demographic that supported Corey, or the younger people who were looking for a change in the system, not just a change in character. But on that day in Connecticut, Booker was getting his feet wet in national politics for the first time. He may have picked the wrong battle. Lieberman was defeated in the primary and re-elected to the Senate only by quitting the party that had spurned him and running in the general election as an independent. Perhaps campaigning for the increasingly renegade Lieberman was not the smartest risk for anyone with national political aspirations. Booker insisted he did not hold such ambitions, of course, but his presence at Lieberman's side, far from Newark's crumbling city hall, suggested otherwise. Something else happened that day, too. When Booker climbed into the Connecticut pulpit and began to tell his story, 
heads snapped up. Suddenly, everyone, including a clutch of national political reporters in town to cover Lieberman, was paying attention. And when he climbed back into pulpits and onto stages two years later to campaign for another young and ambitious black man with multiracial aspirations, he had a little more wind under his wings. Of all of the young black politicians breaking through, Booker may have taken the most unusual route to elective office. Setting aside his Ivy League education and comfortable suburban upbringing, Booker chose to get to know his adopted hometown of Newark by moving into a drug-plagued inner-city public housing project. Corey jumped in and kicked the door down, Ron Rice Jr. told me, and we'd be dumb if we didn't follow him because he is our generation and he does have the right vision for our city and he had the resources. Booker was still in law school in 1996 when he went knocking on doors trying to organize tenants on behalf of New York's Urban Justice Center. There he met Virginia Jones, a 74-year-old resident of Brick Towers, whose son had been gunned down in the lobby of her apartment building in 1980. Sixteen years later, a thriving open-air drug market still flourished there. Booker had bright ideas about how to save the building, but all Jones wanted to know was whether he was committed. The road to hell, she reminded him, was paved with good intentions. Boy, what do you think you're here for, to be a lawyer or to help the people, he remembered her saying. If you want to help, run for office. If you want to be a lawyer, well, run along then and be a lawyer. So, with Booker working with Jones and other tenants to face down the landlord and make demands on city government, change began to take root. Police protection appeared. Slumlords were held to account. And Booker's political career was born. Booker moved into a $600 a month two-bedroom apartment in Virginia Jones's public housing project on Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. He was elected to the city council at the age of 28 by defeating a 14-year incumbent. Boy, Jones told him, you need to understand that what you see outside of you is a reflection of what you see inside of you. And if you're one of those people who sees only problems, darkness, and despair, that's all there is ever going to be. But if you are one of those people who sees hope, opportunity, and love, then you can be somebody who makes a difference. Brick Tower's two 16-story, 300-unit buildings, where Booker lived for eight years, were raised not long after Booker moved out to take over the top floor of a multifamily home in the city's South Ward. There was a marching band there on the day the towers began to fall, and Booker got out of his sickbed to watch. A new mixed-income residential and retail development is to rise in its place. This is finally our community finding redemption after all these years, the mayor said. Sometimes Booker thinks he was born in the wrong generation. A conversation with him is likely to be littered with references to Martin Luther King Jr., Mahatma Gandhi, and Langston Hughes, but also to Chris Rock and Cornell West. On the desk in his office, there is a stack of five books, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, the core beliefs of Hinduism, a Hebrew Bible, and two Christian Bibles. He is a Baptist. He takes part in the civil rights marches led by liberals, but also supports school choice, favored by conservatives, which he supports as a way of giving grassroots people power back. I think we all share this reverence for where we come from, but we also realize that in many ways we have just as severe challenges 
but they're even more complicated than they were in our parents' generation, he says. We have black-on-black violence now. Blacks are being killed at rates untold of in terms of comparisons to whites killing blacks. Newark City Hall is as good a metaphor as any for the city itself. Outside, a handsome facade and golden dome signal the seat of government within. Inside the hundred-year-old building, the paint is peeling and cracked plaster is falling 70 feet to the floor of the tall rotunda. The plaques honoring police valor have not been updated since 1970. But the mayor's office, where men wearing suits and speaking with joisy accents come and go at a brisk pace to do business with the city, is a busy place. Outside the mayor's office on the day I visited, the steps leading up to the building's ceremonial front doors were crowded with hundreds of people, many of them students still in school uniforms, ending a march the mayor himself had led. This day, Americans across the nation, but especially in Jenna, Louisiana, were rallying to protest the imprisonment of six black teenagers in a remote southern town. The plight of the Jenna Six, as they had come to be known, sparked an old-fashioned civil rights outcry. Fueled by the Internet and black radio, the protest had a distinctly new-fashioned feel that reached even to Newark. The front page of New Jersey's largest newspaper, the Star-Ledger, carried a story about Jenna. The headline read, A Civil Rights Phenomenon. Echoes of the civil rights movement surround the erudite young mayor, and Booker embraces them. Even though his presence in the corner office signifies how far the nation has come, the wall opposite Booker's desk features a framed vintage photograph of a child being blasted with a fire hose in a 1963 Birmingham, Alabama voting rights protest. In many ways, Booker worries, the wrong lessons have been learned, both within and outside the black community. The reality is we're still in a place and a time where everybody knows who John Benet Ramsey is or who Natalie Holloway is, he says, referring to two famous cases of white females who disappeared under mysterious circumstances. But so many people, even within my own community, cannot name a black child that died within our communities in an unsolved murder. So you still see a world in which there is a different value sometimes placed or different degrees of horror or response, or where there are consistent and persistent and insidious divisions between black and white. At practically every step in his career, Booker has been forced to delve into the thorny world of racial politics. When the Reverend Jesse Jackson came to Newark in 2002 to campaign for James, he declared Booker a wolf in sheep's clothing. Al Sharpton also campaigned against Booker the first time, he says Booker's mistake during that first campaign was to think he could work around the old line leaders. I think the thing that a lot of guys mistake, my age, younger and older, Sharpton told me, is that they're going to take a shot at civil rights leadership and we ain't going to shoot back. But by 2006, Booker had bigger challenges to deal with than an outsider's criticism. Once he moved into City Hall, the problems piled up struggling schools, violent crime, and unmanageable city workforce. We came in and we had 4,000-plus employees and 3,500 outstanding workmen's compensation claims, he said. After 100 days in office, he was able to publish a shiny report touting his successes, including a safe summer initiative that created 16 safety zones targeted for increased police protection and community outreach activities. The result? 
Murders dropped by 50% in the targeted neighborhoods. In 2007, the FBI reported a 20% overall drop in crime, including rapes, robberies, assaults, burglaries, and car thefts. By 2008, murders had dropped another 40% from the year before. Shootings were down nearly 20%. On top of that, population jumped 3%, making Newark the fastest-growing city in the Northeast. And there was other good news. The U.S. Census Bureau reported at the end of the summer in 2007 that average household income in Newark had actually climbed 28% since 2000. Neither the state nor the nation outpaced that growth rate, but Booker knew one bad weekend could easily obscure the good news he worked to emphasize. Even some of his supporters worry that he is racing so fast toward the lofty goal of turning Newark around that he's failing to listen to good advice from people who see the pitfalls at his feet while his eyes are on the horizon. I remind him every now and then that it didn't get this way overnight, said Mildred Crump, who once ran her own losing race against Sharp James, and he can't expect to snap his fingers like in a movie and it's resolved overnight. You have to be in it for the long haul. Booker occasionally does acknowledge how tough the job he has undertaken is, Speaking at the Harvard Law School event, he offered the rare admission of a weak moment. I tell you, there are days as mayor that I go home, crawl up on my couch at 1130 and turn on Stephen Colbert and pray that he'll make me laugh, he said. I've realized that the biggest, most important challenge is to not change myself, but to be myself, to have the courage to live my truth. This is integrity. This is the challenge of every single day and living in accordance to your highest values, to your highest ideals, no matter how insane that might seem or where that might take you. There is an element of insanity in Booker's ambitions for his city. The city's struggling schools and depressing crime rate are enough to rob even the most determined optimist of his sense of humor. You certainly can't blame Cory Booker, said former New Jersey Governor Brendan T. Byrne. I told him early on that you shouldn't make commitments with respect to homicide because you can't. As elemental and non-racial as these challenges seem, Booker does not pretend they are unrelated to inequities rooted in race. Even though Newark is a majority black city, nearly a quarter of the urban population is white, and nearly 20% is Latino, Asian, or other. Anyone on the hunt for a black politician who believes that his success suggests racial transcendence We'll have to look elsewhere. If you ignore race, you do it at your peril, Booker says. I mean, how can you ignore that racial realities exist in the United States of America? How could you ignore that I live in a state with 14% African Americans, but the prison population is over 60% black? How can you say that's not, that race has nothing to do with it? Let's not talk of it. In fact, one of Booker's pet projects is a subject that comes up repeatedly in conversation with African-American leaders around the country. What to do once these underserved and undereducated prisoners are released back to their communities? In Newark, 2,300 felons return to the streets each year. 65% are headed back to jail within five years. Booker recruited 50 local companies to help ex-offenders return to the workforce, but he had some trouble getting the initiative off the ground. The first two people he hired to run the program quit. We're making progress, but it's like running on the beach, the mayor said. 
The day we talk, Booker has spent the morning at yet another funeral, this one for a 22-year-old black man who he believes could have been a gift to his generation. Instead, he was shot in a gang-related assault. Racism is not a black problem, Booker adds. It's not a white problem. It's our problem. I think that's the kind of dialogue we're looking for on race. Booker embraced Barack Obama's presidential candidacy. The two were introduced in 2005 by magazine editor and Oprah Winfrey confidant Gail King. And their trajectories, Ivy League education, multiracial political support base, seem similar. Each was embraced more readily by white supporters than by black ones, and each has been working to expand the definition of what it means to be a black politician. Standing beside each other at campaign rallies, they even look like a pair of brothers, big and little. We are in the foothills of transforming our nation, Booker said as he campaigned on the streets of his city, but it's a big hill to climb. Indeed it is. Booker worked hard for Obama, traveling the country to campaign for him and predicting brashly, but incorrectly, that the Illinois senator would stage an upset win in the Garden State primary. At home in Newark, the results pointed up Booker's own political weaknesses. Obama won in Newark's black neighborhoods, but Clinton dominated in the white and mixed ethnicity North and East wards, which Booker had previously won. The loss, Booker told me one week later, was sobering. A few months later, Booker suffered another political setback when his slate of local candidates was roundly defeated in a largely African-American section of the city, in the mayor's own neighborhood. It was a week of contrasts. On one day, he was addressing Harvard Law School's graduating class. On another, he was getting spanked at home in Newark, as city leaders who had once run with Booker explicitly turned their backs. Mildred Crump said she had begged the mayor not to take on the district leader fights because she knew from her longtime insider connections that he would lose. But he ignored her. And so he got embarrassed, she said. His political opponents could not have been more pleased at the outcome. The people have spoken, said Councilman-at-Large Donald Payton, Jr., they say we support Booker to a certain level, but this is who we support at home. Steve Adubato Sr., a white veteran Newark ward leader, is 76 years old. Although he is proud of the fact that he was one of the first white power brokers to support Newark's first black mayor, Kenneth Gibson, in 1970, he has often been at odds with this mayor. He called Booker's performance in the district races pathetic. We beat the shit out of him, he told me. He got killed in the South Ward, East Ward, Central Ward. Every place he runs, he gets killed all the time. I'm not exaggerating. It sounds crazy, but that's a fact. Adubato, who says he was once a Booker fan, is now one of the mayor's most outspoken critics. He has little respect, he explains, for someone who seems to have done so poorly at the nitty-gritty of urban politics. For all of the appeal Booker exudes on the national stage, says Adubato, he is missing the boat locally. As it happens, Adubato's son, Steve Jr., has been watching the evolving politics from the sidelines as a talk show host and commentator on New Jersey television. Having himself served one term in the New Jersey legislature, he comprehends the crosswinds at work. Here's the catch, the younger Adubato told me. I don't believe that Corey has ever really mastered or understands that there's a need to master showing the proper respect, touching the right bases, frankly, 
kissing the right asses to put himself in a position where he could, if not ameliorate, just minimize some of that negativity. Perhaps it is only to be expected that any breakthrough leader would attract some level of censure from the people he blew past. Comparisons to Barack Obama abound. I like to distinguish Obama from Corey, said Princeton's Eddie Glaw Jr., who chats regularly with Booker and with Cornell West, another Princeton professor who sometimes acts as Booker's political muse. Corey is the mayor of a black power town, of a black power city, so he's had to make some very interesting moves in that space in order to govern. One of those interesting moves came when Booker was drawn into a confrontation with the city council over the suspension of police chief Anthony Campos. Campos was a Booker-picked lieutenant who had run afoul of local politics. He also happened to be white. So when Booker stuck by him in the face of displeasure from the majority black city council, his tenuous ties to the elected officials who won with him in 2006 were strained. Even Council President Mildred Crump, a Booker supporter, said there is no respect for the council. Booker had already angered some of his supporters by promoting Campos to the permanent position in the first place. Campos was a 21-year veteran of the force who had served as acting chief for a year. But in selecting white men for both of the city's top law enforcement jobs, police director Gary McCarthy was the other, and passing over a black candidate to do it, Booker had broken an unwritten rule. I felt betrayed, Crump told the local newspaper at the time. Newark is a very unique community, and we lean on relationships, Crump told me a year later. And Mr. McCarthy came in with none. The mayor's opponents were not above theatrics either. At one city council meeting just before the Ivy Hill murders, a clutch of them showed up wearing T-shirts that read, Recall, and we supported Booker and all we got was this lousy T-shirt. For a lack of a better term, I don't think he gets it, said the Reverend Jethro James, a Booker critic. And shortly before the schoolyard killings, Booker was forced to apologize for a story he had told at a Democratic fundraiser about a recently deceased Newark activist, whom he described as not only fat but profane and corrupt. He also described dodging bullets in Newark like the character Neo from the movie The Matrix. When video of the event surfaced on YouTube, it became clear the mayor had thought his description of the activist was affectionate and funny. The crowd laughed. But what those who hadn't been in the room saw was the black mayor making fun of a revered black figure, perpetuating negative stereotypes, and worst of all, making white people laugh at black folks' expense. It is racist, declared Newark Council member Dana Roan. Why deliver the story in a room full of white people? Tell a positive story. That rap had followed Booker before. He liked, for instance, to tell stories in front of elite white audiences about a young man he said he met when he came to Newark named T-Bone. I said hello to this guy and I'll never forget. He leaped off the steps where he was standing and looked at me and threatened my life, Booker said during a February 2007 speech at Manhattan's New School. He said, I don't know where you come from, but if you ever so much as eyeball me again, I'm going to bust a cap in your, let's say, posterior region. The audience laughed. But it was the kind of laughter that sounds entirely different coming from white people when the target of the joke is black. These undercurrents at home were part of a provincial uneasiness about the bright young mayor that never entirely went away. Plus, 
Booker has never been above the occasional publicity grab, such as pitching a tent in a terrible neighborhood in 1999 to protest open-air drug dealing. In Street Fight, he allowed cameras to follow him day and night. He looked like nothing less than a hero, and he knows that some of his tactics, hunger strikes and tent pitching, come across as stunts. Absolutely, he says, reaching back as he often does to the civil rights movement he was too young to experience. But was it a stunt for my heroes to get on a bus and drive down to the South, knowing that you're going to get all of the press following that bus and knowing you're going to get chain whipped? And the bus is going to get blown up? Absolutely. Start bringing attention to the problem. But the comparison falters when one considers that people lost their lives during Mississippi Freedom Summer, and all Booker stood to lose was his political standing. After he had been mayor for a year, some residents began to question why he hadn't bought a house and demonstrated his willingness to assume some of the city's tax pain himself. The mayor's mother, who raised her son to befriend everyone, bemoans the racial minefield she sees everywhere in a city such as Newark. Everything is measured through the lens of black and white, Carolyn Booker says, remembering how someone complained to her after her son delivered his annual State of the City address that there weren't enough black people in the audience. I mean, in front of us were black people, behind us were black people. She says she thought, what section were you sitting in? The mayor has assembled a supernova of celebrity support as his national profile has risen, attracting people such as former New York Giants running back Tiki Barber, Miami Heat basketball player Shaquille O'Neal, former Dallas Cowboys running back Emmett Smith, and actor Keenan Ivory Wayans to the city to explore development opportunities. Booker dismisses critics who grumble when he airs the black community's dirty laundry in public. A whole bunch of nitpicking going on, he grumbled to me. Some of the nitpicking thrives because Booker, like all neophytes, may have set the bar for change impossibly high. He is extremely passionate, but he oversells things, said Byron Price, who resigned from the city's prisoner reentry program after only three months, complaining about a lack of resources. You can go out and give big speeches, but you have to deliver. All the same, Booker seemed to recognize he had supplied his own distractions, simply by overpromising what a bright and brash newcomer could accomplish in a city beset by rampant political and social insecurities. By the time he climbed into the pulpit at Terence Ariel's funeral in the summer of 2007, he was regretful. I want to repent to this church, he said. In the days leading into Saturday, I was saying things that hurt this city. But I broke down. I was broken down. But in the pit of my despair... I heard the Lord speak. More often, he takes his critics on, especially if they are outsiders. Booker was infuriated by an Esquire magazine article that cataloged the city's many ills and, among other things, portrayed Newark as a place, quote, racked by decades of ruin, a town known only for murder, blight, and feckless negritude. Booker sent off a blistering reply. Enough, he wrote on city letterhead. There has not been an article written since I have been mayor that has made me and my fellow Newarkers more angry than this one. It is altogether a tired song that has been sung by people who don't know our city. This music has played for decades, and the people of Newark have endured enough disrespect, disregard, and contempt. Enough! Internally, Booker takes note of his critics more calmly, 
and occasionally even strives for the greater dose of humility that might help mute their complaints. I've come to a point of greater knowledge, greater respect, and greater awareness of my own weaknesses, Booker told his hometown newspaper in 2007. But in that weakness, I discovered a greater strength connecting with other individuals in the community and drawing on their strength. Some of those individuals were still calling for Booker's head, and the mayor gives them credit for drawing attention greater than their numbers warranted and for standing down once the schoolyard killings forced political disputes to take a back seat to sad reality. Most people at that point who were of good conscience put down their swords and pulled and joined arms, he said. I wish and hope as a leader that I could help sustain more of that unity because ultimately, as the African proverb says, spiderwebs united could tie up a lion. You know, we need to find more of that unity. But Booker's critics are not going away, and his mother, as one might expect, is baffled by it. As much as this kid works 24-7, it's amazing to me that they still don't think he's visible enough and that he's with the people enough, Carolyn Booker says. Like all wise and ambitious politicians, Booker says he is focused on the task at hand, saving the city of Newark. For now, he leaves it to the legion of others who have bigger plans for him. My job here, I really feel like I'm on the front lines of the fight to make this country real. At the end of 2007, the Star-Ledger published a New Year's prediction for Booker that seemed only partly tongue-in-cheek. By the end of 2008, the newspaper guessed, Booker would A, emerge as a star after showing solid progress on crime, ethics, and education, B, announce that he was leaving City Hall to seek higher office, or C, be crippled by corruption charges against a close ally and endless confrontations with the City Council. None of those three things happened. Context of white supremacy. This is our first audio segment uh, from Gwen Eiffel, The Breakthrough, Politics and Race in the Age of Obama. Uh, so we'll be picking up. Uh, we are still in the chapter on Mr. Cory Booker. Uh, it's a lengthy uh, chapter, and it doesn't even get to him becoming eventually a uh, U.S. senator uh, and possible presidential candidate. But uh, we will finish that up during the second audio segment. Uh, if you have commentary uh, you would like to share on what you've heard during the first uh, portion of the reading, the number to dial is 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. That number again, 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. If you do not want to use your phone, but you still want to join us for the discussion, you can use the free Vope line. It is linked at Black Talk Radio Network. If you need the address, it is tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Uh, If you needed the address again, it's tiny, T-I-N-Y 
dot cc forward slash one race and that is the number one when you put in that address click the link on the left of the page it says uh, free vote line click that link when you do so it will open a small window on your screen on the top line it's a drop down menu select the number that I just gave which again is six four one seven one five three six four zero the next line it will ask for the code that code again is five six four nine four three final line it will ask for a name you can put in a nickname a real name if you <clears throat> just want to press random keys that's fine too whatever works uh, once you get all that entered click the green button at the bottom it will connect you to the live program and it is the same procedure if you would like to participate you'll see the dial pad on your screen press star six and then one will get you on the line and be ready to go uh, with that uh, folks have commentary oh uh, if you anyone is having problems accessing black talk radio network mr reed uh, just sent out an update to make sure that we were all informed i guess there have been some issues with people being able to access uh the black talk radio network site so if you uh, are having trouble if you just try to listen uh online you can always listen at tune in i just posted the link on my Facebook page and I'll tweet it out as well but if you ever have any issues accessing uh, the live program if you just listen online at Black Talk Radio Network you can always just go to tune in you can listen live archived content does play there but when we're live you can hear the live program uh, at tune in so that'll work if you're in your vehicle if you're on your computer uh, if you have a mobile device smartphone whatever it is uh, you can access tune in and pull up the the live content there as well Right on. If you have any trouble, drop me an email. We'll get you helped out. Untiljustice at gmail.com. Uh, folks who dialed in uh, with a hand up, uh, we will get to your lines. Uh, the caller at 5771 should be with us. I'll nab other hands as we go. Uh, greetings, guests, and uh, greetings to the uh, callers and listeners. Uh, just before I start, uh, you were mentioning the TuneIn app. I listened to the show uh, through TuneIn and I hear a minor clicking sound, so you know, just you know, just let you know about that. Um, in regards to uh, when when uh, when the author talked about Kendrick Meeks, um, it was interesting because uh, Meeks uh, uh, she also mentioned that uh, uh, in his district the constituency was uh, was the they they were Haitians in there, and and he deals with uh, Haitian issues. But what was so interesting was he ended up supporting Hillary Clinton. Now, most most people that know Haitians know that they the they are the Clintons are very much hated in Haiti from what Bill Clinton has done, from what Hillary Clinton has done, and from what the Clinton Foundation has done to that nation. So that was very interesting to hear about Kendrick Meeks, you know, supporting Haitian, uh, you know, Haitian issues, but, you know, he's supporting Hillary Clinton, whose family is basically anti-Haitian. <laughs> so uh, that that was kind of crazy. Um, Mark Mallory's uh, uh, first run at an office was interesting, too, because uh, uh, Gwen mentioned about her father not helping, I guess, not assisting him in his campaign, even though white politicians you know, 
do it all the time. So uh, I didn't understand how, you know, he didn't want to help his son, but, you know, white politicians, they basically, you know, help, you know, they basically, you know, help nepotism and whatever all the time. So it's like a family thing with them. So um, it's interesting with Cory Booker, uh, his first year there, uh, what was it, the Ivy Hill murders that happened, and he immediately got blamed for a lot of the murders that happened within his first year uh, of, you know, being mayor. But, you know, what's so interesting about that is, like, uh, Chicago saw 700 deaths here, and nobody had blamed Rahm Emanuel for it. But, you know, like a black mayor in Chicago, I mean, in New York, New Jersey, you know, they, they want to blame all the murders on him, even though statistically at the end of his first term, they say that, you know, the, the murder rate has gone down uh, in his first term. So uh, that was pretty interesting. Uh, uh, she also mentioned the hockey analyst that was talking about being careful about uh, going to the downtown area to watch your wallet. It's basically racist code for, you know, black neighborhood. Um, Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton, uh, I guess, criticizing Booker uh, in his first campaign. Uh, like I said last week, politics seems to bring out the worst in anti-black behavior. So uh, there's another one right there. And the one thing about political speak, you know, that just really irks me is, you know, there, and it's purposely done is there's no basic clarity when they. The, the quote that uh, that he uh, Booker mentioned, and I'm just paraphrasing where he said, "Racism is not a black problem or a white problem; it is our problem." What is who is R? You know that that was that was my question when I first heard that quote. Like, who is R? You know, I don't I don't understand that. He mentioned black and white, but you know, is is there a third person? You know, a, a third person that I'm I'm missing because you know, according to racism, white supremacy, there's only white and non-white people. So, uh, I mean, it, it would have been clearer if he would have just said racism is, 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 is not a black, it's a black and white problem, even though that's incorrect as well. But at least I would have understood what he was saying. But, you know, I, I just didn't understand what our, our problem is. So uh, that's, uh, that's all I have on me in my line. Huh. Appreciate that. I just, uh, refreshed uh, the stream on TuneIn, so we'll see if that uh, helps to clear things up. I'll check it again. Uh, thanks for the information as well. Um, if other folks have commentary, feel free. I will also let people know that we are closing in. This book is not very long. Um, thankfully, <laughs> this is not going to be breaking the top ten, although I have learned some things. Um, and again, it's it's I don't know what my assessment would have been. I can't imagine that I would have been in love with this book if I had read it like right when it came out in 2009 uh, for reasons that I've touched on before. But in particular, reading it now, man, <laughs> it uh, for a myriad uh, of reasons, uh, Trump being on the way, as I said, Artur Davis leaving the Democratic Party, joining the Republican Party and denouncing President Obama, making an effort to rejoin the Democratic Party. It's uh just wow, uh, looking at, you know, where all of this is and Kwame Kilpatrick being in even more trouble than he was uh, at the time. Jesse Jackson Jr. It's just wow uh, that in addition to Obama is leaving for President-elect Trump. Wow. Totally different read. 
1842. Did you have uh, commentary you wanted to share? Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Greetings, beautiful people. 1842. Um, I had a couple of notes. Um, nothing really um, stuck out to me in this reading um, that made me say, ooh, that helped me put a couple of things together. Um, but just a couple of notes. I noticed the way that she said, handsome white man. Earl, in the very beginning of this section, uh, this reading, and it stuck out to me only because of the interview where we were first introduced to uh, Richard Spencer. Um, and he, the fo there's so much focus being on him being, you know, handsome or whatever. And I was just like, hmm, I, I linked the two. They are probably, you know, not related at all, but um, I noted it. Another thing, um, <laughs> uh, I noticed. The first time when we read, I realized that I did I don't know a lot of these people that she's talking about. So it was hard for me to follow who did what and who said what and all of this. Um, and so Beth had pointed out the last time when I mentioned this that a lot of them are very, very light skinned. Uh, but this time I was like ready with my laptop. So when names were dropped, I was able to Google. And it appears that this this part is focusing on the darker skinned sons or politicians. I don't know. It could just be me, but just when I was looking, every time I looked up, they were uh, more melanated than the individuals that we heard about in the previous and last weeks. Um, that could have nothing to do with anything, but I just thought it was very interesting that, okay. Uh, and then just black on black crime uh, was mentioned and that is just starting to uh, burn my grits, <laughs> as I've heard on the show before. Um, and it's just that, again, like I said, nothing extra really serious jumped out to me. But just the black-on-black -black crime, I feel like a lot of this doublespeak or um, just confusing terms, um, even things like black society or black this or black that. And I'm just like, well, what does that even mean? And the fact that I spent a lot of time not really feeling that I needed to define those terms. Um, so I just kind of like went along with it, assuming that I understood what someone was talking about. But that just worked to create a lot of confusion for me um, and, and really developing an understanding of the system of racism, white supremacy. So black on black crime, just I don't like it because I don't think it really um, speaks any truth to what is going on. Um, and then she said, or this is a quote from somebody, but they said that racism is our problem. My question could be completely off base or um, irrelevant, but I just thought to myself, you know, whose problem is racism really? And um, so, you know, I don't, I don't think that white people consider racism to be a problem. And um, so... Um, I'm sorry, excuse me. I was, someone was trying to talk to me for a second. I apologize. Um, but I don't think that white people really look at racism as their problem. And so I just wanted to pose that question. And then my final thing that I noted was, you know, there's too much acceptance of certain behavior patterns as just normal 
And of course, all of us are victims. Like all we're doing is trying to cope and and deal with the trauma and terror of being black and under the system of racism and white supremacy. Um, but the way that uh, one of the politicians was talking about, they were like upset at another politician saying, "Well, you didn't pay your dues." But the quote was, "You didn't kiss the right asses." And then the what followed the quote was, and this was really only to minimize animosity. So it's like we've even in those higher echelon levels, which we all, a lot of cows listeners know, doesn't mean that you will um, not be a victim of racism, white supremacy, but how colloquial or familiar it is to be like, well, you have to kiss so-and-so's behind here, kiss so-and-so's behind here, just to minimize um, being a victim or minimize animosity. And I just think like, it doesn't even get rid of it all, all the way. And so um, not that that's like something, you know, new, but it just stuck out to me how normalized conversing about that was. And that wasn't something that was paid any attention to in the book when we're talking what seems to be quote unquote like black politics or black breakthrough, like how much stress and degradation or detriment to black mental health, that kind of normalized accepted behavior is. There was a lot of uh, other things too with some of the um, black politicians uh, not you know, working well together or disagreeing about a lot of stuff. But for me, that just seems um, normal. Like, that's just part of what the book seems to focus on a bit. Um, you know, like the what Gus was talking about earlier. So I definitely, like, did pay attention to that. Um, but that is all I have for now. Thank you. Appreciate that, 1842. Uh, if other folks have commentary, uh, feel free. Um, I especially appreciated the first caller, the male caller, his point about the contradiction uh, with the mix, I believe it was. I'm going to go back to double check with the names, but them uh, supporting their Haitian citizens in their uh, voting district, but also supporting Hillary Clinton in that contradiction. I thought that was uh, important. And the complexion uh, issue, I brought that up last week, 1842, reminding folks about that because the Cory Booker section is like monstrous. <laughs> like This is a, uh, it is a really chunky chapter. I feel like most of what we heard in the first uh, audio segment was the Cory Booker chapter. That's chapter uh, seven. And we're still not done. <laughs> we're still rolling. I feel like it's significant. I mean, I can look at the, uh, I can get a page count, and let people know like for sure. But I mean, it looks sizably larger than the other chapters. And he, of course, Cowbell has a white parent and this chapter is huge. And this is before he was even in the Senate. I mean, people are talking about Cory Booker and he's one of the few quote unquote black people. I say that because he does have a white parent and I'm not sure uh, how he racially identifies uh does he identify as a white person i mean a quote-unquote biracial does he just identify as black or whatever at any rate he's one of the few quote-unquote black people in the senate period but people were seriously talking about him as a replacement for uh antonin scalia supreme court justice that died earlier this year they were talking his name was one of the few that was mentioned as a possible replacement and uh he has been talked about seriously uh for 2020 uh, even 2024 uh, running for president uh, for the Democratic Party. He's in one of those prime spots. If you're in the U.S. Senate, like, whoo, could be. So uh, this chapter could be huge if they ever do a uh, a re-edit of this book. I mean, he'll have he'll be the he'll be if they do breakthrough part two, he'll be the central figure instead of President Obama. Uh, even I think some of our listeners, they went to Stanford and they were sharing some stories about how 
uh, powerful white people at Stanford. And this was like years ago. I think this was before uh, Mr. Booker was in the Senate and maybe even before he was a mayor. Maybe he was mayor of New York at the time. But white people at Stanford, they were kind of like, you know, saying, hey, keep your eye on this boy. We got things in store for him. He's, he's going to do a lot. We're going to see to it. Keep your eye on Mr. Cory Book. And Stanford, really one of those elite schools. It's not Ivy League, but white people are like, oh, wow, really prestigious uh, university. Lots of powerful people uh, attend Stanford. That's out in uh, California. Uh, the caller who dialed in uh, last four digits, 4243. Did you have commentary? Hello. Um, may I be heard? Yes, ma'am. All right. Uh, thank you for taking my call. And um, hello to all the listeners and callers. Um, I just briefly wanted to comment. Um, I, when I was, because I was looking up, I was having to look up uh, the people in the book as well, the different politicians and so forth. And I saw that apparently he is, or he maybe was trying to run in 2020, because when I was looking his name up, it said Cory Booker 2020. Um, or I could have been wrong, maybe he might have been on the show 2020. And then just referring back to the question that you asked, I think it was the past couple of weeks, who was the book written for? I, I definitely feel like it is written for um, non-white people, maybe specifically for black people. And... Uh, just simply because it just keeps going over, and it seems like it's, it's going to be a, a, a trend as far as going over, well, these people have transcended so many different um, uh, demographics to, uh, like, voting blocks to get elected, and despite the fact that they are black, it just really kind of makes it seem as if, you know, falling in line with what our society is about is basically, you know, what you're supposed to do so much and try to um, almost hide the fact that you're black by either trying to assimilate or trying to do so many good things. Or even like I was just looking online about Cory Booker and something had said something about how he is like the golden boy or maybe was viewed as something like that and just basically what you were just talking about. But I also feel like if it is a book that, people who classify themselves as white read, I feel like it would probably be some it would probably be a tool for them to point to to say, well, you know what, if you're doing that or if you're if you're not doing if you're not in a uh, better off station in your life, then, you know, well, all these other people did it in this book, especially since it was um a bestseller, then I'm sure that, you know, many different types of people read it. Um, it, it, I feel like it, it's just a, a way to reconfirm that, you know, if you're doing bad, then it's, it's your fault. Um, I, I think that's actually that's all I have to add. Uh, thank you for taking the call. Great point. Great point. I definitely think in terms of uh, regardless of uh, the intended audience, white audience, non-white audience or black audience specifically, uh, that racists could use something like this exactly for what you said. Hey, I don't want to hear a whole lot of complaining and making excuses. I think <laughs> uh, the current occupant at the White House has said that explicitly to black people. But I think this book could be used in conjunction with that. I don't want to hear a whole lot of excuses about racism and what whites have done to you. All of these people have made it. We got a black president and a black mayor of Newark, soon to be senator. Uh, and, you know, all these other people have accomplished and done wonderful things. You can do it, too. And if you don't, it's you. You're just lazy and trifling and shiftless. Not white people being racist. Exactly. 
Um, uh, some of the other things that I also uh, thought were important, even though I think that complexion thing is kind of significant. Um, I mean, if we're looking, like I said, Artur Davis is on the lighter side. President Obama has a white parent. Uh, Cory Booker has a white parent. A lot of the people and it's uh, some of the other folks as well. I just have to go back and uh, look through more of the names as we, or pay attention as we're moving forward. But a lot of these folks are pretty pale. Like, I think that is that's huge. If this is the breakthrough, you can do this. You can appeal to white voters. You can get these offices provided you don't have too much melanin and or you have a white parent like that is gargantuan and kind of further solidifies the point that I've been saying about uh, it is important in the system of white supremacy because racists say it's so and they uh, the way that they operate this system is based on its significant. Yes, this is a non-white person. Yes, President Obama, Cory Booker, they're victims of white supremacy, but they do have a white parent. And that's important for how racists manipulate their system. Anyway, unless I have, you know, I'm misinformed. Uh, some of the other things that I thought uh, that stood out from this week. Uh, also, it's seeming to be a a pattern. Uh, number one, white people don't get indicted for being racist in this book. The word racism is not in the title. I've been pointing that out as well. When she's talking about uh, the Meeks family in Miami, uh, the caller already pointed out them supporting the Clintons. And it goes on, it says uh, when Bill Clinton got in trouble for making what were widely interpreted as racially dismissive criticisms of Obama, Meek rose to his defense as well. Is that part of being a quote unquote breakthrough? You have breakthrough. You have to defend uh, white people from allegations of racism. It seems like we've heard that uh, in the book as well. In fact, it seems like that's been a big part of, of this whole breakthrough thing that we will trust white people that they're not racist. That'll be how we do things and we won't bring up racism at all. It seems to be a part of this package uh, that's presented in this book about things that you have to do, patterns, things that are expected of you if you're going to be this breakthrough non-white politician in the 21st century. Um, Let's see. And it's not Bill Clinton. Again, it's it's the wording. I know she's a journalist, but I mean, that seems real white. It's not that he did. He was suspected of practicing racism. You could have said it that way as well. Uh, or charges of racism leveled against Clinton. You could have said that as well. It's making what were widely interpreted as racially dismissive criticisms might even add a bucket of buckets and buckets of words on that. Uh, next, uh, let's see. Uh, let's see. Next. Yeah, Kwame Kilpatrick in way more trouble. Uh, it's not. I mean, this is <laughs> this is real mild. The trouble that she's talking about for the indictment. I think he's got over 20 years uh, in greater confinement now. Uh, the indictment that came down down the road. Uh, whites really uh, had it out for him and then mocked him uh, after he went off to do his uh, federal time. Um, I, I thought it was stunning. It, it jarred me for a second and I still don't really know what to make of it. I might even have to, to ask you all, what, what did you think when she was talking? Uh, this is still in the legacy. Uh, oh, excuse me, made an error. This is in the court. This is the beginning of the Cory Booker section. And actually I saw the documentary that she's talking about street fight. It's been years uh, since I saw it, but her mentioning it was like, Oh yeah, I saw, I saw that. And it's exactly, she said, it's just like it, uh, it almost looks like kind of a low budget thing, but it might be 
manipulated to look that way, but it just, it's kind of in his kind of small little apartment when he's just starting out and he loses the race as they say in the book and just kind of talking about his career and his life and him going to Stanford. And they show some of the pictures of him playing football at Stanford and him going around and trying to meet people and be all grassroots and do his thing in New Jersey. Might be worth a watch, uh, Street Fight, if you want to check it out. But so she's talking, this is the Cory Booker segment, uh, Cory Booker section. The paragraph, it reads, Sharp James, who in 2008 would be convicted for shady real estate dealings and sentenced to 27 months in prison, had a bigger name than Cory Booker for lunch. Uh, had bigger names than Cory Booker for lunch. Booker, the child of a gilded, virtually all-white suburb, was an easy target. He possessed a distinguished and distinctly non ghetto pedigree I was stymied <laughs> like, number one I don't know if I've ever heard that term used non ghetto to describe someone like this is the non ghetto candidate or this person is perceived like I've never heard that used I certainly have heard people described as ghetto but I just thought like wow so who are the people that are perceived as ghetto <laughs> like, would that be Everybody else, like the non-Obama, and again, he has a white parent and is perceived as non-ghetto. And I heard, it reminded me now, because it didn't at the time, like I said, I was just like, wow, I need to highlight, and I don't know what to make of this remark. Uh, it reminded me of, uh, well, now he just retired, uh, Senator Harry Reid, when he got in trouble in 2010, or he didn't get in trouble, they just talked about it a lot and made a big to-do, and some people hinted that he might have been, or what he said was racist, but it was the same thing. No one called uh, the retiring senator a racist, but he said President Obama, who also has a white parent, that he was able to win because he was not too dark, and he didn't talk, I don't know if he said ghetto, but he said he didn't uh, have the normal type of slang, the way that black people talk. And that was good. And that was why he was able to do so well and ultimately win the presidency. But it reminds me of that sort of, uh, remark. I don't know if people want to toss out a word, uh, what they think about that. Uh, what else stuck out from the Cory Booker section? Um, let's see. I thought, uh, Senator Lieberman not supporting, uh, Barack Obama. I, that is stunning. I heard some of that this time around, but I did not believe these white people. And actually, what I heard more of was white people coming out and saying that they didn't like Donald Trump. They didn't think he was qualified. He was a liar. He was a buffoon. He was this. And at the end of all their name calling, they said, if he wins the Republican primary, I'm going to vote for him. <laughs> they didn't. Most of the white people and even a lot of the white people who said they weren't going to vote for him. I think they lied. Uh, but that is very unusual uh, to have elected officials, U.S. senators like these are, you know, major political office holders going out. And I think they call it bucking the party line and saying, oh, no, I'm not going to support that nigger candidate. I'm going to vote for John McCain. Very unusual. Could be another act of racism. What else? Is that? Uh, racism was said in this chapter, but it was a quote from Cory Booker. I thought that was important as well, because I think we've talked about uh, consistently. I know I have. Uh, and this is done. This is not anything isolated to Miss Eiffel's book. This is regular where people, they're moving you away from talking about the problem, white supremacy. We're not even going to say racism. We'll say race or prejudice 
or bigotry. They'll give you, you know, one of those uh, white privilege or one of those other uh, terms. But race, a lot of other terms, racially dismissive, lots of other terms to just obfuscate from what the actual problem is, white dedication to white supremacy, terrorism. Uh, but I thought there was another one. I thought it was important. Number one, like I said, Cory Booker, he did say racism. That was one of the few times the word popped up in the book, but it was a direct quote uh, from him. Uh, and then uh, she's, uh, or actually she's talking about Cory Booker as elemental and non-racial as these challenges seem. Booker does not pretend they are unrelated to inequalities rooted in race. There's a, let's see, not using racism, even though Newark is a, majority black city nearly a quarter of urban population is white and nearly 20 percent is latino asian or other i uh, just thought again we're obfuscating we're not speaking directly uh to what the problem is and it's even like in a moment where we're trying to be truthful that newark has all of these problems it's related to white supremacy even then we're still having to kind of pussyfoot uh how we talk about it which to me almost suggests the type of thing that you do out of concern that white people might be upset about what you have written or what you're going to say uh, about racism. Uh, final comment I've got in, uh, this is, I think, 1842. She said this last week about a lot of the people, the victims in the book being presented. Uh, they just sound like ambitious. They, they want to accomplish. They want to be great things. Arthur Davis, he wanted to be the first black mayor in Alabama. It just seems like these people are very uh, ambitious. Um, doesn't necessarily seem like their primary focus is replacing white supremacy with justice, which is not a surprise. That's not the case for most of the non-white people on the planet. But just that really resonated once I realized again, I'm learning a lot about all these people as we go through the book. So that's one thing that I definitely credit Miss Eiffel for well-researched. I'm learning about a lot of these people helping to better understand racism, white supremacy. But Artur Davis, what can I say about that other than this is someone who is very ambitious Replacing white supremacy with justice is not the goal. If you are at first a Democrat and staunchly supporting President Obama, then it moves from I'm no longer an Obama lackey. Now I hate him. I'm one of his critics and I despise him and he's messed up and we need to get rid of Obamacare to then I want to join back with the Democratic Party. I don't know what else you can categorize that as uh, with Mr. Artur Davis. Uh, and again, I played the uh, clip at the beginning of the program that was Artur Davis speaking about why he bolted uh, away from Obama in 2012. I will hush there. Did other people have commentary, particularly, I guess, if anybody wanted to address the, the non-ghetto remark that was made about Cory Booker, just what you think about that term or that, that sentence, if people have thoughts or anything else that stood out from the section? Our folks have no comments. Everyone's satisfied. No comments. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. 1842. Um, I'm thankful that you brought that back up because that was something else that stuck out to me again in this reading. I've been um, paying quite a bit of attention to how uh, their legacies or their families. Oh, yeah. And yeah, oh, yeah. there's, there's been a few instances where the the child that is going to take the parent's place wasn't even interested in politics. I mean, there's like at least two that I can remember specifically, and they just kind of happened to do it. And um, I think for victims of racism who are confused, like myself, 
um, that's something, I mean, I never looked at black politicians as they were doing anything, but it's always good to know a little bit more about, you know, not only are they slightly ineffective because they're victims of racism and white supremacy trying to function in the government of racism and white supremacy, but also just like their focus or their intention is not in, was, was not even there to begin with, like at all. They just did this because they needed something to do. And I think that's the case with um, the manager at the library. I think that's who we heard about today. I'm, I, I, well, if I could get to my laptop quick enough, I could remember his name. But, um, I mean, wasn't even interested. And it was like, well, I have to go. Let me get all my sons together or my children. The, the daughter wasn't interested. And let's figure out which one of you is going to do it. And then they picked, like, the librarian. guess he needed something to do. And I think that's important for those of us who are confused to understand that as well. To You know, when we look at black politicians, a lot of times people are like, well, they're not doing this, they're not doing that. Well, like, yeah, they're victims. They're in the system of racism and white supremacy. But also, that wasn't, like, that's that might not be their assignment. It might be they just ended up there because it was convenient or mommy and daddy pushed it or it was like the move, but that's not necessarily like where they belong. And I've never really considered that because I didn't know these family histories about how people are getting into office. Um, I did appreciate the father saying, well, you have to run. That way people are not saying that, you know, I just gave it to you or you didn't have to do anything. And then they still said it anyway, but I did appreciate that. Um, This is in my the related but might be unrelated in other people's views. The Black is the New Black, the BBC documentary series. This is to answer your question about the um, non-ghetto. I actually feel like I have heard non-ghetto, but I couldn't like pinpoint exactly when. Um, I kind of, you know, I could be totally incorrect, um, but I'm starting to feel like those of us who are highly melanated, I don't know what we'll, we're going to be considered. Because I feel like those who have white parents are black. Like, that's when they say black, that's who they mean now. And I don't know what that means for the rest of us. Um, We're going to be like old black or like black black or something like that. Um, Because a lot of them are, have a white parent. They're not, you know, they just have a white parent. And so um, they get to be all the things that those of us who are, more melanated or not, like non-ghetto um, and professional and um, classy. Those are like three, well, professional and classy are things that I hear to pretty much mean um, closer to white, like like you're acting white would, uh, and educated, smart, or intelligent, like or one of those. Um, and the non-ghetto, I think, kind of just fits in there. You're like, you're black, but you're not those Negroes over there. You're new black, like like um Pharrell. He said it. He said he was a new black, and um, in an interview with like Oprah, and uh, I know he doesn't have a white parent, but he has a a parent who's not black. So I think, you know, I could be again totally incorrect. Forgive me, uh, but I think the new black person is our people who have one black parent, and then a parent who is non-black, and more more specifically white and then they get to be all the things that black people are not and so that's my contribution thanks hmm. fascinating 
Uh, that was a big theme in that BBC documentary as well. Just came out a few weeks back. We talked about it with uh, some of our global listeners over in the UK. Uh, that uh, non-ghetto phrasing, uh, now that I've had more time to think about it, it also reminded me of the Oreo experience. If people have been listening to the cows for a while, <laughs> way, way back, uh, she's been on the program a couple times, but one of her infamous phrases, the Oreo experience is a black female. Uh, she victim of white supremacy. She does a lot of uh, like satire and joking about racism, sometimes accurately, uh, often very inaccurately. Uh, but one of the terms that she uses uh, is RBP for regular black people. Uh, a part of her shtick is she is an Oreo, so she's trying to relate to white people. She's like white people. She doesn't hang out with black people. She doesn't do black people things. She is special. And then there are RBPs, regular black people. <laughs> she uses that term all the time, but it reminded me of that as well. So you have Corey, non-ghetto Cory Booker with a white parent, and then RBPs, uh, like Al Sharpton. Uh, anybody else commentary they want to get in before we get to second audio segment? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, I wanted to add to this. Um, I guess with with uh, uh, Gwen Eiffel's book, uh, you know, she's she's presenting the uh, I guess the the families, the uh, the the black political families as I guess progress uh, in regards to you know breakthrough. But I, you know, I'm, I'm having trouble with it because of the fact that when you look at you know, the black political families, you know, and they're basically like local or state and, you know, maybe in Congress, but compare them to like the white families, like the Bushes, the Clintons, the Eisenhowers. These are, these are families of presidents. And, you know, I guess, you know, talking about, you know, uh, local, you know, local political, um, you know, black politicians. Yeah. I don't know if she's making that comparison about, because I remember uh, in the chapter last week, she was, you know, she mentioned like the Bushes and the Clintons, and these are families who have become presidents and, or you know, or ran ran for presidents and had a good chance of winning. So, uh, you know, I kind of kind of find that I won't exactly say it's a false comparison, but I just have a problem, you know, um, seeing that type of comparison of you know that being a breakthrough. Um, yeah, that's, that's all I wanted to put out there. I'm looking at the actual, uh, page count, uh, in the book right now. So the legacy politics chapter is larger than the Cory Booker section in the books. I was talking about, to me, it seems the Cory Booker section is pretty thick. Uh, it's 21 pages and the legacy chapter is 26 pages. So that chapter, a few pages bigger than Cory Booker, but the Cory Booker uh, section of the book is uh, by far one of the larger chapters in the book. Um, easily mad that I'm looking at the, looking at the whole thing. And that was Mark Mallory, uh, 1842. When you were asking the, uh, library employee who ultimately got into politics, that was Mark, uh, Mallory, where you were saying that some of these folks, it seems like they didn't even really have a, a plan uh, to do this, that it was just their parents were doing it and it would be uh, somewhat easier uh, for them to make that transition. Um, also, and this is uh, the same person, uh, Mark Mallory. Uh, this, this is the Ohio family. 
where they had the conversation and the father said, well, I can't just give you my seat because then people will say, well, oh, this was just a gift from your daddy. Um, I think that might have been sound counter-racist logic from the father, uh, because even though I think we've had at least two people who've pointed out that uh, Mr. Mark Mallory, the son, that he still faced that criticism that, oh, you just got this job from your dad. You know, this is just nepotism run wild. Uh, but it would have probably been sizably worse uh, if his dad had just stepped down and his son could have stepped in without uh, facing an election. Uh, I think he might have sensed that the father and saying, you know, you're you're. <laughs> You're black. You're already going to be mistreated. It's already going to be a whole lot of this, at least see. Uh, and I think like 1842 said, I thought that was a great point. It's not going to uh, totally eliminate the problem, but this might at least reduce it uh, so that it won't be as bad if I just step out and make it look like some, you know, dad hooked up his Negro son with this uh, with this job. Uh, anything else folks want to get in before we get to audio segment number two? I will assume folks are satisfied. Uh, now, again, we are closing on the end of this book so people can kind of be uh, thinking about, you know, major themes, what sticks out. The chapter that we're going to hit, I don't think we'll finish it today, is the politics of identity. That is an interesting one. Uh, kind of be alert to that one and particularly keeping in mind since so many of the people that we've had in this book either have a white parent or are very, very pale. Uh, I forgot Harold Ford Jr. That's another cowbell. He married uh, a white woman and he is very, very pale. Uh, I am sure that his uh, offspring uh, would be able to be classified, accepted as white. Uh, if they look anything remotely like he and his wife, uh, they should have no problem breaking through, quote unquote, uh, to the white race. Uh, I will assume folks are good. If you have additional comments you want to get in, uh, just make a note. And again, be thinking of last themes because we might be concluding this book next week. Uh, we'll have to see how uh, how far we get. Uh, context of white supremacy. Again, this is Gwen Eiffel, The Breakthrough, The Politics of Race, excuse me, Politics and Race in the Age of Obama. We are picking up uh, on the chapter with Cory Booker. Along the way, Booker became a surrogate big brother to three teenage boys, adapted to the routine of 16-hour days, and developed a skin that toughens with every new crisis. Still, it becomes clear in any conversation with the mayor that he has tied Newark's survival to his own. This effort to save a city is an intensely personal quest for the man who was told by his parents that he could do anything. I mean, hell, this is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life says the still young mayor. And there are days I definitely feel like just going home and curling into a ball. But what keeps me coming back into the game, strapping on my chin strap, is I look around me and I'm reminded of who I am. As for who Cory Booker is, he is a walking, talking, philosophy-spouting generational conflict. In his attempt to woo those who would spurn a city such as Newark and mollify those who are defensive about its past, Success for Booker lies in forging a way forward. The trouble is, the path forward is littered with the debris brought on by the act of breaking through. Mildred Crump says Booker's problem is that he surrounds himself with people who tell him he can do it all, all at once, that he is the one who can fix it all. And I say, sweetheart, no, you're not, she told me ruefully. You're a baby in this business. 
Chapter 8. The Politics of Identity I'm still not exactly sure what that means, is he black enough? Of course, you would never hear that about a non-African American or somebody who is white. Oh, he's not white enough. What does that mean? Philadelphia Mayor Michael Nutter On the night Barack Obama won the South Carolina primary, his supporters could barely contain themselves. Bouncing back from a surprise defeat two weeks before in New Hampshire, the double-digit victory thrilled the multiracial crowd gathered that night in the heart of the South. When their candidate appeared, they took up a chant. Race doesn't matter. Race doesn't matter, they shouted in a chant that built and spread throughout the room. Standing at the foot of the stage in a ballroom just blocks from the state capitol, Obama's pollster, Cornell Belcher, watched in astonishment. Here you are in South Carolina, three blocks from where the Confederate flag is still flying in front of the state capitol and all the history that has held in that state, Belcher, who is black, told me later. And you have a group of young white people shouting, race doesn't matter. Now, do they think there is no racism? No. But were they screaming and shouting the world they wanted to exist? Yeah, that is powerful and profound and very different. This may have been the only night during the course of the campaign where anyone believed that race indeed did not matter. Certainly, the candidate at the center of all the euphoria did not believe it. Obama, like every other elected official in the United States, was keenly aware of how much the nation's mood swings on race could determine the outcome of a competitive election. Sometimes race helped and sometimes it hurt, but it always mattered. The first question, usually directed to African Americans by African Americans, was frequently an upside-down identity test. Are you black enough? Governors, mayors, and lawmakers of all stripes I spoke with have been confronted with the question, especially early in their careers, and especially if they were new to the game. Even Walter White, the founder of the NAACP, who campaigned against lynching and in favor of equality in education, was deemed inauthentic in some quarters because of his fair skin. So it should come as little surprise that this same attitude infected politics. I was not immune to that by any means, former Massachusetts Senator Edward Brooke told me. Brooke, a fair-skinned man with wavy hair and patrician features, remembers that the charge was hurled at him when in 1964, as Massachusetts Attorney General, he refused to support a group of black parents who wanted to boycott the public schools to protest segregation. I had to call them as I saw them, he said. You couldn't keep a child home from school for political protest purposes, and I said so. Now, you can imagine how the black community came down on me on that issue. Four decades later, the race test seemed peculiar to many of Obama's white supporters who wanted to believe they did not see race when they looked at their candidate. Barack was bigger than that, they would tell anyone who asked. They were colorblind, they boasted, so they were more than a little surprised and frustrated that the race test never seemed to go away. Obama dealt with it when he challenged and lost to Congressman Bobby Rush in 1999. Rush, a former Black Panther, derided Obama's Harvard credentials, and another competitor, State Senator Donnie Trotter, deemed the young interloper, quote, the white man in blackface in our community. It was a race in which everything that could go wrong did go wrong, 
in which my own mistakes were compounded by tragedy and farce, Obama wrote years later. His performance reminded me of a comedian dying on stage, the Chicago Tribune reporter covering him wrote. Obama ended the race $60,000 in debt. In 2004, Obama won election to the U.S. Senate. But once he started to run for president, the question popped right back up again. In August 2007, Leonard Pitts Jr., a columnist for the Miami Herald, decided to count up the, quote, black enough references. He discovered 464 instances where Obama's name was linked with the phrase, the first dating to 2003. Obama, without question, did not fit the corrosive stereotype of what a black man was supposed to be. His speech was precise and grammatical, his clothes tailored and conservative, his demeanor calm and non-threatening. In much of the black community, however, this meant that white people liked Obama, which in itself seemed to render him an object of suspicion. I'm not making an argument that the resistance is simply racial, Obama himself said late in the campaign. It's more just that I'm different in all kinds of ways. I'm different even for black people. If I were watching Fox News, I wouldn't vote for me, right? Because the way I'm portrayed 24-7 is as a freak. I am the latte-sipping, New York Times-reading, Volvo-driving, no-gun-owning, effete, politically correct, arrogant liberal. Who wants somebody like that? The Illinois senator's advisors had another theory about why Obama's racial identity remained a subject of comment and conflict, especially early on. Well into his race for president, Obama, they said, was still a mystery man. The truth of the matter is, four years ago, the average African-American didn't know who Barack Obama was, Belcher said. Roland Martin, the outspoken CNN contributor, took the matter on in two front-page articles in the Chicago Defender, a black newspaper he edited at the time. It's inconceivable that a black man could be married to a black woman and have two black daughters and not be concerned about black folks, he told me. And by the way, Obama played basketball, including the morning of every primary and right through the day of the general election in 2008. Here is a place, he told Bryant Gumbel on HBO, where black was not a disadvantage. He's been black for most of his life, as he understands it, said Michael Eric Dyson, the Georgetown University professor and author. So why all of a sudden would that black card, so to speak, with apologies to American Express, get lifted or taken away by merely suggesting that his melanin or his pigment is not the predicate of his politics? It's not how black his skin is, it's how black his politics are, if that's possible, what are you doing and saying most about the issues that are important to the people of color? Writer and poet Bamani Arma called the question asinine. What do you expect the first black president to be, he wrote? A dashiki-wearing, afro-with-a-pick, fist-waving, ex-black panther? With black reporters who asked Obama about his so-called blackness more persistently than white reporters did, the senator occasionally tried laughing the whole thing off, one African-American to another. I want to apologize for being a little bit late, he told the National Association of Black Journalists when he strolled on stage at their convention, an uncharacteristic 10 minutes behind schedule. But you guys keep asking whether I'm black enough. 3,000 black people, all familiar with the stereotype associated with black tardiness, known as CP time or colored people's time behind closed doors, exploded in surprised laughter. 
The white people in the room, unaware of the code, shifted uneasily. Were they permitted to laugh at that, even if they got the joke? As the campaign evolved and gathered the credibility that comes with the momentum, Obama became convinced that cynical political motivations were behind the question. On a bright and sunny campaign day in Laconia, New Hampshire that summer, I asked him why the question kept coming up. There was a political, systematic agenda to push that storyline into the press, he replied, and people asked me if it bothered me. I said, you know, I went through that stuff when I was 20. I'm an old man now. I'm 45. I know who I am. Now, it may indicate the degree with which we as a nation are still confused about race, he continued, or there is still confusion within the African-American community about who's black and who's not. But I'm sure not confused about it, and the truth is, I don't think most folks are. Most of the folks in my barbershop are not confused about it. Perhaps not in his barbershop, but the debate was aired repeatedly in other barbershops, beauty salons, and places where black people gathered. Michelle Obama, the well-educated, chocolate-skinned daughter of Chicago's predominantly black South Side, told one audience to, quote, stop that nonsense because we are messing with the heads of our children. But she also remembered other children telling her as she was growing up that she talked like a white girl. Matter of fact, I remember that, too. There isn't one black person who doesn't understand that dynamic, she said. That debate is about the pain that we still struggle with in this country, and Barack knows that more than anyone. It is true few people have pondered the question of racial identity more publicly than Barack Obama. In his best-selling memoir, Dreams from My Father, he wrote almost meditatively about his search for racial identity as a young man born to a white mother and black father. And in college, he embraced the writings of Malcolm X, the light-skinned, red-haired activist whose autobiography radicalized a generation of young black people. Malcolm spoke of a wish he'd once had, the wish that the white blood that ran through him, thereby an act of violence, might somehow be expunged, Obama wrote. I knew that for Malcolm, that wish would never be incidental. I knew as well that traveling down the road to self-respect my own white blood would never recede into mere abstraction. Obama was 20 years old when he realized that, and he wrote later in his well-received autobiography, The Audacity of Hope, that he identified himself as African-American with little trouble. This puzzled some of his idealistic white supporters. Why, more than one person asked me, did he seem to be rejecting half of himself? When it came to racial identity, Obama couldn't win for losing. Nobody asked if I was black enough when I was in the U.S. Senate, right? He said, thinking aloud to a group of African-American columnists. Everybody was happy to claim me. Everybody thought, man, that's our guy. Everybody was proud as punch. Suddenly I'm running for president, and all these questions start coming up. Well, why is that? What happened? Did I change? Was my background any different? Did I start talking in a different way? Have I run away from any issues that are important to the African-American community? No. No. What happened was that I showed up and suddenly people look around and say, where did this guy come from? And why is he kind of breaking up the party? In retrospect, it did not take long for the question of Barack Obama's so-called blackness to appear moot, almost quaint. Once he won in Iowa, Obama began regularly collecting 80 and 90 percent of the black vote. His competitors blamed automatic race loyalty, but it was clearly more complicated than that. 
Iowa became very important to us, Chief Strategist David Axelrod told me after the campaign was over. I think that was a galvanic event vis-a-vis the black community, because here was a state that was 98% white embracing the candidacy. In other words, black voters decided Obama could win once white people did. Only then did his candidacy catch fire. Philadelphia NAACP President Jerry Mondesire later called it an emotional tsunami. Obama's bigger and more enduring challenge would prove to be the same one that has dogged African-American politicians all along. White reluctance or outright racism, much of it encoded in a way that made it impossible to expose. For instance, when a New Jersey town wanted to block the construction of a public park, some complained that, quote, church groups from Trenton might start showing up. Whatever might that mean? Others simply invented reasons not to vote for the black man. I don't think it's because he's black, one Kentucky County official offered as a way to explain why Obama would not win there. What everybody says is he's a Muslim, which, of course, is not true. Father Andrew Greeley, the liberal white Catholic author and priest, boiled the arguments down to their most pessimistic interpretation in a column for the Chicago Sun-Times. The point is that racism permeates American society and hides itself under many different disguises, he wrote. The nomination of an African-American candidate was a near miracle. Only the innocent and the naive think that the November election will not be about race. Ultimately, Greeley's pessimism was overstated, but double standards still abounded. When Colin Powell crossed party lines to endorse Obama, Radio talk show host Rush Limbaugh declared it solely an act of race loyalty. If I had only that in mind, I could have done this six, eight, ten months ago, Powell said on Meet the Press. No such assumptions were made when Democratic Senator Joe Lieberman endorsed John McCain, and although it made no factual sense, Obama continued to be linked both to the rants of his former pastor, a Christian, and to the unfounded rumors about his Muslim background. Obama's campaign finally confronted some of the more scurrilous race-based rumors by launching a website, fightthesmears.com, that debunked them all. This was a reversal for Obama, who generally preferred to sidestep overt references to race, although on occasion he challenged white audiences to get past the visuals. They're going to try to make you afraid of me, he told an audience in Florida after he clinched the party's nomination. He's young and inexperienced, and he's got a funny name. And did I mention he's black? Obama was repeatedly forced to confront the matter of his race because every public survey showed it mattered to a significant segment of the electorate. Race is intertwined with a broader notion that he is not one of us, said Pew Research Center pollster Andrew Kohut, speaking of how Americans view themselves in general. They react negatively to people who are seen as different. The dilemma of identity politics has plagued famous black people ever since they were permitted fame. The glamorous Lena Horne was rightly embraced for her groundbreaking work in films such as Stormy Weather by the same black audiences who wondered if her strikingly fair skin wasn't the real reason for her success. Diane Carroll, the singer and actress who staged her own breakthrough when she became the first African-American woman to star in her own television series, told me she struggled for her first film and stage roles against the perception that, even at 19, 
she was exotic and therefore sexually available, a stereotype she confronted routinely. I thought you've never seen a black person, she said. Find a way to relate to me. I would do that very often working with writers and producers. Look at me. I am what I am. I'm not pretending. I don't know what you thought, but this is who I am. Let's work with it. The comedian-turned-civil rights activist Dick Gregory brought the House down at Tavis Smiley's State of the Black Union Conference in 2008 by reminding African Americans of their own race identity conflict. Bill Clinton, he pointed out, had been embraced by many as the first black president, while Barack Obama was being questioned for not being black enough. What the heck, Gregory wanted to know, was that about? Obama occasionally tried to turn the notion of racial identity on its head. A recurring part in his stump speech mocked genealogical research that proved he was distantly related not only to Vice President Dick Cheney, but also to movie star Brad Pitt. But the danger inherent in arguments about racial identity is that oversimplification is easy and sometimes dangerous. Candidate Ralph Nader stepped purposely into that when he accused Obama of trying to, quote, talk white to win over non-African-American voters, and later declared Obama and Uncle Tom for not championing enough progressive causes. Michael Steele, the former Maryland lieutenant governor who lost a 2006 bid to join Obama in the U.S. Senate, looks at the question through a practical lens as well as a political one. You've got to be able to speak about these things more broadly because you don't want white folks to think you're a single issue or single race individual, which most people aren't, he said. But the black community also has to hear some authenticity with respect to their issues in your voice. But biracial breakthroughs have come to occupy an entirely different plane of identity. Obama and other breakthrough politicians, such as Maryland Lieutenant Governor Anthony Brown and Washington, D.C. Mayor Adrian Fenty, are biracial but identify as black. Still, many white voters are clearly more comfortable thinking of them as half-white. Do you choose to believe a thoughtful man such as actor Don Cheadle, who told Harvard historian Henry Louis Gates Jr. in the PBS documentary African American Lives, you are what you have to defend? As James McBride, a biracial writer, put it, if cops see me, they see a black man sitting in a car. Or should we listen to a thoughtful man such as Harvard Law professor Randall Kennedy, who argues that black identity is a choice, especially for biracial achievers such as Tiger Woods? I put the question to Georgia Congressman John Lewis. This is not a new question, he pointed out. It's an age-old question. We heard it in the 60s when we were moving into the period of black consciousness and black power. There were people saying that individuals were not black enough. How black do you have to be to be black enough? You know, the majority of the population said if we held just one, a tiny drop, we were black. What does it take? Do you have to preach blackness or do you have to be a champion of blackness to be black enough? Representative William Lacey Clay Jr. says intraracial identity politics is something any public figure has to learn to expect. You really have to take it for what it's worth, he told me. You have to look at who's making the charge. There are still haters out there. We have turned it into an art form. Aspiring black leaders are often commanded to transcend race, even though no one ever asked, say, Hillary Clinton to transcend gender. This is a precarious race straddle that most members of the breakthrough generation seem to reject. 
Even the most well-meaning white Obama supporters seemed to take deep satisfaction in this idea. Obama, they insisted, could be raceless, a reassuringly optimistic view of America's deepest burden that ignored countless pieces of evidence to the contrary. Obama's role as a standard-bearer for a new post-racial politics rankled a stubborn community of left-leaning academics, many of whom wondered aloud in blogs and Internet chat rooms what exactly post-racial was supposed to mean. I don't like that term, Princeton Professor Cornell West once said when asked about post-racial politics. You work through race. You don't deny race. It's the difference between colorblind and lovestruck. You see, if I love you, I don't need to eliminate your whiteness. If you love me, you don't need to eliminate my blackness. You embrace humanity. But blackness is becoming an increasingly complicated notion. Take the dilemma facing the voters in the 9th Congressional District of Tennessee. For years, Memphis voters were represented by African-American congressmen, Harold Ford Sr. and Harold Ford Jr. But in 2006, the same year Harold Jr. ran for U.S. Senate and lost, 15 people ran for his empty House seat, and the man who won, Steve Cohen, is white. As a member of Congress, Cohen backed legislation apologizing for slavery and recognizing the contributions of Memphis soul music. He tried to join the Congressional Black Caucus as a representative of a majority black district, but was denied. Within months, one of the people he beat, African-American airline executive Nikki Tinker, began to mount a rematch. Coming in the midst of the racially charged presidential campaign, Cohen's re-election campaign split members of the caucus. Representatives Gregory Meeks and Stephanie Tubbs-Jones backed Tinker. Representatives John Conyers and Charlie Rangel backed Cohen. Meanwhile, back in Memphis, Jake Ford, who also had lost to Cohen in 2006, declared Cohen unfit to represent the district because of his whiteness. Jake Ford is a black candidate. It's a black district, and we need black representation, said Isaac Ford, Jake's brother. Jake and Isaac are sons of Harold Ford Sr. and brothers of Harold Jr. The two Harolds promptly denounced those members of their own family. I want to make clear my brother's comments are not mine, Harold Jr. said in a statement. I reject them. I don't believe any candidate's fitness for office should be measured or determined by race or gender. The voters rejected it, too, and Cohen was re-elected. It is one thing to reject the measure. It is another thing to dismiss it as unimportant. Of the scores of black achievers interviewed for this book, None was willing to say race had not in some way enhanced or hampered the voters' perception of his or her political fitness. It's striking how many told the same stories. Buffalo, New York Mayor Byron Brown used the word fascinating rather than frustrating to describe the manner in which his racial identity was questioned. I've tried to do what our parents have said to do, get a good education, be the best you can be. Present a good image, be articulate, work to improve your community, be active in your community, be a good husband and father, stay away from criminal activity because that can destroy your life and have a negative toll on your family and your community, he said in a rush when I asked him about it. And even when you do all of those things, for some, that makes you not black enough. Much of the complication when it comes to identity politics is rooted in conflict that African Americans seldom talk about across racial lines, one that is tied in with the nation's painful history. 
The fact is, many African Americans are direct descendants of the white landowners who enslaved their forebears. Cory Booker's parents, Carrie and Carolyn Booker, have caramel-colored skin, and their son is considerably fairer. When they travel from their home in Atlanta to visit their son, they regularly discover that black voters are surprised to learn they are both black. But the mayor's father told me of walking Newark streets and being approached by people who complain about his son. He isn't black enough and he don't belong here. There's always been this division between light-skinned blacks and dark-skinned blacks, you know, that we grew up with, as insane as that is, Carolyn said. Because Booker and his brother, Carrie Jr., grew up as two of the few black children in a white suburb, they came late to some forms of race consciousness. Young Corey, his mother remembers, had trouble grasping the meaning of the refrain in a popular James Brown song, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. The kids were having a hard time latching onto that, Carolyn says, laughing. Her literal-minded sons would insist they were brown, not black. And so we'd say, well, you can be brown and proud. The pride was the thing. Cory Booker says the pride is still the thing. I mean, I can go through the different black leaders of the past generation who were always questioned on their authenticity, but always were willing to break the mold. The proof is not in the name-calling, Cory Booker now says, but in the results. Some of the gay brothers in the movement back in the day were always questioned about were they really black. In fact, it was a vicious bigotry as well, he recalls. It definitely hurts when people throw it at you, Booker says of the not-black-enough criticism. But when you are centered in what you're doing and how you're moving, and then also say to people, please, please, nobody was doing anything for minority businesses in this city, and you have evidence to throw in their faces, that gives you even more certainty. Deval Patrick was born and raised on Chicago's legendary Black South Side, but it took only a few years spent at an overwhelmingly white prep school and an Ivy League college to plunge him back into the muck of proving his identity. You can't be black enough if you speak the King's English, he told me, describing the array of false choices offered to African-American achievers. Or you can't like opera and hip-hop. You gotta pick one. That in the political context, you can only win a political race if you can lay claim to a black base. But in states such as Massachusetts, where blacks make up roughly 7% of the population, that formula is obviously not a workable one. So what's an aspiring politician to do? Patrick's problem was rooted in his present, not his past. His grassroots activism was well behind him by the time he ran for governor, and he and his wife Diane had evolved into something far more inaccessible. His worldly set of experiences and his very high-end set of corporate experiences and his personal wealth were a problem for the black leadership and the voting black public, said one Patrick friend, who is black. They voted for him, but you did hear, who is he? Is he black enough? Elected officials such as Patrick have little choice but to shrug off some of these criticisms. Would black people like him better if he fit some demeaning stereotype of a black man? If he ate chicken wings and watermelon in public? If he were more authentically black, whatever that means? It's hard to know. But the demand for that authenticity is without question the most predictably explosive theme in black politics. Sometimes the question is posed in code, as when the Philadelphia Inquirer asked Philadelphia Mayor Michael Nutter to respond to charges that he, the son of a plumber who grew up in West Philadelphia, 
was elitist. Nutter was well-educated and well-spoken and did not run with the city's traditional black political leadership. I don't know what elitist means, to be honest with you, he responded. I mean, I could have come in today with my jeans on maybe halfway down my behind and my hat on backwards. Interestingly enough, Obama also had the elitism charge tossed his way during the primary campaign. The son of a single mother who on occasion relied on food stamps to support her children, Obama ran into a landmine during the Pennsylvania primary when he suggested at an elite fundraiser in San Francisco, no less, that he was having trouble connecting with small-town voters who were bitter over their stations in life and tended to cling to guns and religion. This was bad enough coming from the man who had appeared on fashion magazine covers, but it also played into another troubling story arc for a black candidate whose very ambition seemed outsized. Within four days after the comment surfaced, Time magazine reported that a Google search for the term snobama resulted in nearly 4,000 hits. But the charge of insufficient blackness, let's call it, touches all sorts of additional, often painful chords when both attacker and attacked are black. Congressman Kendrick Meek thinks he's figured out the reason the question never goes away. Black folks, he says, want to know that the people they elect with their Ivy League degrees and new power, have not forgotten their roots. I keep thinking that we've broken through that, but at the same time, it's a very difficult balance, he told me in a conversation just off the House floor. It's strange. You have some folks, when you start looking at those broader issues, they say, are you leading the civil rights struggle? Are you leading the struggle for equality? Are you now kicking the ladder down that helped you get up? Can you still talk about Ms. Johnson with meaning? Can you still bring the mustard to the debate on her behalf? Or are you flying at a higher altitude and not able to see what's on the ground? Sometimes the charge is hard to shake off. Three years after Alabama Congressman Arthur Davis's race loyalty was called into question by the black man he ousted, Mary Moore, another black state lawmaker, used similar language to downplay Davis's chance of getting elected in 2010. I don't think we're ready yet to elect a black man governor, she told her hometown newspaper. I think if Davis gets into the general election, he'll find out how black he is. Other veteran African-American politicians poo-pooed the entire debate. What is blackness, scoffed Douglas Wilder. Is it the way you talk? Do you got to say day this, day that? Or the way you dress? Or is it the forgiving of certain things? What is black enough? Is Jackson black enough? Is Sharpton black enough? Vernon Jordan has no patience for people who called his decision to support old friend Hillary Clinton an act of treason. Let me tell you what the movement was about, he told me over lunch. The movement was about the freedom for you to determine who you want to be and what you want to be in real life. So you can go into the media and I can go to Wall Street and Kenneth Chenault can go to American Express. That's what it was about. It's not about the right for somebody to have a meeting and tell you what to do with your life. And that is where we will conclude this week. We are still uh, on the chapter on uh, identity, the politics of identity. Uh, well, that's what we'll pick up at for next week in chapter eight, context of white supremacy. If you would like to participate, share a word, the number to dial 641 715 Four zero 
the code is five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate uh, we should have ample time if folks have commentary they would like to share feel free uh, I think we have both of the young ladies who shared with us the first time around 1842 uh, and the caller at uh, 4243 both of you should be with us if other folks uh, have commentary they would like to share go ahead and get your hand up now May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, this is forty-two, forty-three. Uh, I just some of the things that I um, got from this part of this segment was uh, the the line where that I can't remember who said it, but it had something to do with either Americans or I feel like it, what was said was Americans were afraid of people who are different and. To me, that was definitely very much encoded as uh, people who classify themselves as white are afraid of non-whites or people who they have yet to classify as white. So, you know, I guess I.e. the Jewish people or Arabs who they feel that haven't completely embraced or decided to, to pledge themselves towards helping white supremacy. I thought that was definitely very odd. Um, also, the breakthrough generation, that part, that terminology I was kind of confused about. I, I don't know if maybe I missed in, like, some of the past segments from last week. Maybe she kind of broke that down or not, whether that's a, that is, I guess, the generation after civil rights or if it's kind of a, a combination of a bunch of different um, generations or is that just... Uh, limited to the the black people or the non-white people who have broke through some type of glass ceiling as far as when it comes to politics, because I guess, because of course that's what the book is talking about. Um, the the Also the sentence about how uh, President uh, Obama had to be raceless, which was definitely, I, I feel like it's, this this portion of the book is definitely very perplexing, and the fact that you know it's it's definitely dancing around the issue like you have said before, which is you know the the system of white supremacy. If somebody has to, the only people who have to be raceless or who like we've said in the past who have to um, basically uh, put down other black people or black people who are definitely uh, annoying to white, i.e. Jackson or Sharpton or um, uh, uh, Jeremiah, uh, Reverend Jeremiah Wright, I think that's what his name is. It's like, are, are from, from my understanding, black people, I don't even see this with other non-white, uh, non-black people. But the whole raceless thing, that just seems odd. And just how, um, in the other part of the book, where they did say, well, um, Hillary Clinton, she didn't necessarily have to trans, uh, transcend her gender identity. So that kind of definitely, uh, at least it helps me as far as giving me ammunition when I discuss how feminism, fem, feminism is not um, for, 
for uh, non-white people because that that that's definitely it, it definitely lets you know that it gender I struggles with gender identity or what have you it's not the same as as racism uh the last thing i wanted to comment on was the representative i think it was the mayor cohen who beat out um a, a black person or in, in in a certain place or district what have you that had always had black leadership and how he was uh, trying to legislate um, different bills, and one of them was about apologizing for slavery, and it kind of, and that was also odd to me too. Like, okay, well, I, I'm I'm kind of over this whole thing of apologizing for slavery, apologizing for certain things. It's like when I, I'm not hearing that with other situations, and and what and and, and so what does the apology entail? Does that mean okay, well, we're sorry? any white person walking down the street can say I'm sorry for slavery, but that doesn't necessarily take away all the different uh, negative repercussions that slavery has caused. Um, There was one other thing as far as school choice, and um, I think it was a black representative who had his blackness called into question because he was um, speaking out against the mothers who wanted to take their children out of the schools to protest. And I just felt like that was that was also kind of odd to me because if they're not really teaching your children in the first place, or if they're teaching your children uh, this whitewashed uh, view of history, and and definitely teaching your children the incorrect things, I'm I'm not quite understanding what was so wrong about taking the children out of school. Now, of course, you definitely want to still give them some other type of um, some other type of teaching, some other curriculum, but taking them out of school, I, I'm, I'm definitely a believer of that. Um, that. That's all that I have at this point. Uh, thank you for listening. Grand observations. Grand observations. Uh, caller at 4243. Uh, 1842, you are with us, and uh, our male caller who shared with us uh, the first time around. You all should be with us also. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, okay. In this section, um, identity, I would say this is probably, for me, one of the more impactful sections of the book thus far. Um, I think because it really just highlights how important it is to have a functioning, logical definition of racism, white supremacy, because from that, like, I think that formulates or should formulate and inform our identity as non-white people, whether we are black, black with a white parent or black with another race parent or whatever. Um, is so long as we have the functioning definition of racism, white supremacy, I think so much of this confusion when it comes to our identity could just be obliterated. And um, so pretty much all of my notes are about that. I'll go through just a couple of them. Um, I thought it was interesting, you know, with the whites shouting that uh, race doesn't matter, this chant that occurred someplace, and, um, and that they were, this is somewhat of a quote, that they were shouting that the world, to the world that they didn't, wait, they were shouting the world they wanted to exist. And someone had posed the question that, that gets, or said that that was different, that was new. 
And I said, no, it's not. Um, I think hippies did that. And I think whites did that in the seventies. Um, so for me, I don't think that that's new. Um, and then, um, fair enough was used in the text. And then I, I was interested to know that people referred to, um, president Obama as a white man in black face. Um, uh, also very interested. I did not participate in the reading of um, President Obama's autobiography, but I do think I had heard before, but it was raised again, that he was greatly influenced by Malcolm X. I'm currently listening to Malcolm X's autobiography and the study sessions. Um, and then, I mean, I know he is a victim of racism, white supremacy, so I know he's limited in what he can and cannot do while in office. Um, but I was kind of curious of, you know, what, how was he influenced and like, in what way was he influenced? I know that when she mentioned it in the book, it was linked to where he identified as African-American. Um, but it seemed like many other times when people were asking him, are you black? Like he kind of doesn't, he doesn't just say yes. Um, I could be incorrect about that. I'm pretty much just going off of what I'm hearing in the text. Um, but I kind of would appreciate it a very, simple, clear answer. Yes, I'm black. Um, or no, I'm not black. Like, well, you know, where are you now? Um, and then uh, the corrosive stereotype of black males. And I did, I wasn't able to get the entire list of this stereotype, but um, I know it entailed, you know, not speaking correctly and not dressing properly and so forth. Um, and well, that was just a note. And then mentioning that Obama plays basketball. And then when President Obama like arrived late to the journalism convention or something similar to that, forgive me if I'm incorrect, but he like made a joke out of it saying CP time. Now, I don't know if he has a pattern of being late to events with the majority of black people or if he has a pattern of being late. But again, I, and listening to the autobiography of Malcolm X, Malcolm X is, he's saying in his autobiography was never late um, and was very punctual. So that kind of was like, well, how was, how were you influenced? I wasn't sure if I really appreciated the joke very much. I think that one way to show that you really respect people um, is that you are on time. Again, it could have just been an accident. People are late all the time. So you just turned it into a joke. But if there was a pattern, that would be interesting to know, you know, like how you actually view your time that you spend with black people and how you and how he would view his time that he spends with white people if he was giving um the same amount of respect and then um one thing that i will say i did not necessarily know about code prior to the cows i didn't know about code like i remember when everyone was talking about it when i was listening to some of the podcasts i was like what is this and so i googled it to understand what folks meant when they were talking about code. Like there was even um, an advertisement like uh, that that's would play. And it was like, <laughs> develop your code. And I was like, what? Are you tired of laughing when nothing's funny? And I was like, yes. But anyway, so, um, but she mentions code in the book a couple of times. And it could just be me. Like people could have been talking about code all the time. And I, not knowing what it was, could have completely not paid attention. But she mentions you know, code a lot, code a lot. And when she's doing it, it's also helping me to realize like code is not this massive thing that you can't understand. Like code is just saying, well, you know, you don't walk on the side of that part. You don't walk 
uh, over there in that part of the town, or I didn't show up with my pants sagging. Like, code is, in my mind, I was perhaps a little bit more confused about how whites are using this code, but, you know, things from cuck to don't walk over there to I didn't show up with my pants sagging down or, like, all of these things are code, like a subversive way of saying something, which listening to the, the text helped to clarify that a bit for me. Um, and then, um, oh, and then there was a, a part where it said that President Obama could win once white people decided he could win. Thank goodness. It's, you know, like, not that I need someone else to verify that. Like, I totally understand the logic behind that as I've been participating in the cows. But it was also interesting that it's in this text as well that, you know, we can say it all we want to, but it's also nice when someone else who's like not thinking about racism in the same way is like, well, look, President Obama was pretty much put in office when he could win. I think was it Iowa or Idaho? I might be confused, but he he won that, and pretty much they're like, well, whites put him in, so it's a go. Whites said that they want him in there, so now we can all vote for him and put him in there, which just um, validates some of the things that I've heard on the cows that white people put President Obama in office. And so did they with Trump. So, and then there was like a quote where it said, folks can choose to be black. And I'm just like, this is what happens when we don't have a proper understanding of racism white supremacy. All the kids, like all the, the, you have the civil rights leaders who became politicians and then their offspring are pretty much saying, we don't want to deal with race. We can choose whether or not we want to be black. I speak the King's English. Now look, like I went and I did everything I was supposed to do. And now black people don't even acknowledge me or like me. They say I'm not black enough. Like I'm all confused. Pretty much what I heard is I'm confused. I don't really, you know, like if I can choose, I don't really want to be black. But since, you know, I'm not sure. I'm trying to play the fence as best as I can. And, um, and like when she said, well, he was like, I'm not black. And I was like, again, confusion. You are. But you can be brown and proud. Like what? Black is not a signifier of your actual color. It, you know, so like these are the conversations that we get to be having with the young people and not being like, well, you can be brown and proud. Like what? <laughs> you just confuse that child even more. In my opinion, I could be totally uh, incorrect. But this entire section has been really good to listen to um, because it really just highlights our confusion. And um, if given choices, how many black people would not necessarily want to be black and do everything they can to not be black. And I think that sometimes I'll just say this for the record, that sometimes our uh, lighter skinned black um, victims of racism, white supremacy, um, make it seem like it's just like they're being rejected because of all of these, like, you know, they speak well and all this other kind of stuff. And we got right to it, but we didn't get into it. But like a sense of um, like being above. And I'm happy that that was at least mentioned. But um, I think it's important because sometimes people will like make it seem like you're just not black enough because you speak really good English. But there's also a way that you are with other black people who don't speak English the same way that you do or who who just, you know, come from a different lifestyle. And so sometimes we can be looking down on each other and like kind of play a victim role and make it seem like, well, they just don't like me because I speak really good English and I listen to rock music and opera. And it's like, well, no, you might really kind of be giving off these energies that you don't really respect them because they don't. And with that, I thank you. Thank you. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Um, wanted to bring out a point that uh, the previous caller, 1842, had mentioned about uh, Obama and basketball. Um, 
I believe it was Roland Martin who wrote that article uh, in the Defender talking about, I guess, verifying Obama's blackness because he plays basketball. Not sure if that's just his confusion or if he's writing to a white audience, but yeah, uh, because he plays basketball, he's black. So, yeah, you know how that goes. Uh, another point uh, uh, she mentioned also was uh, racial identity uh, is a voice. I believe that was uh, somebody named Randall Kennedy who had quoted that, and I, I, I believe he was referencing black people with a white parent, and they referenced Tiger Woods. Now, I'm thinking that this book was written before uh, the Tiger Woods scandal with his wife, with his white wife, uh, uh, and, and, and everything that happened in that. And um, we all know that after that, Tiger Woods had quickly become, uh, <laughs> uh, I guess, uh, if, if, if they label Cory Booker non-ghetto, then Tiger Woods became ghetto quickly after that. So uh, that that was pretty interesting, you know, with the with the timing of of that quote in referencing Tiger Woods. Um, Rush Limbaugh, uh, she referenced Rush Limbaugh talking about Colin Powell and how uh, Rush said that you know Colin Powell was you know just supporting Obama because of racial lines, and it's so ironic he would say that because you know. Um, we have this misconception or we have this confusion uh, amongst black folks about, you know, uh, political lines being stronger than racial lines. And, you know, Joseph Lieberman, you know, was, a, was an example that's been, uh, has been uh, presented in this book about him uh, being, you know, he's a long life Democrat. And then when Obama runs for office, he supports uh, John McCain. So, you know, and in and, and the example of the, you know, 53 or 54 percent of white women voting for Trump in this election, you know, it's uh, uh, racial lines always trump political lines when it comes to white people. So um, and also Lena Horne, uh, the Lena Horne presentation that it, well, the Lena Horne, uh, when she mentioned Lena Horne, and she used the, she used the term exotic. Now, it's interesting because from my personal experience, I've heard a lot of white men describe black people with a white parent, uh, uh, especially uh, well, in particular women, black women with a white parent as exotic. I'm trying to figure out what they're saying, but it sounds like very, you know, sounds very codified to me. I don't know, but uh, that was pretty interesting uh, when I heard her say that. So uh, that, uh, that's it. I'll be mine. To me, it sounds the word exotic, and, and I hear it uh, almost exclusive. It seems like there's a gender use. I don't hear it used to describe uh, males. It's generally non-white females uh, who uh, I almost, I would say, I would decode it to be, you don't look like the niggers I'm accustomed to seeing uh, and, and, and in a sexually enticing way. Like that's almost the way it seems. You don't look like you're still a nigger, but you just don't look like the niggers I'm accustomed uh, to seeing in a sexual way. I wouldn't mind raping you. That's almost how I decode it. Um, the uh, person that dialed in from a block number, did you have commentary you were going to share as well? Uh, not hearing you. Thomas in New York, did you have commentary? 
Pablo. Uh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, we can't hear you now. <laughs> we can hear both okay, of you. I'm sorry about that. For sure. Good to hear from you, Karma. And you also. Uh, on that part where um, they said, um, well, now that the white people in Iowa have voted for uh, Barack Obama and white people think that uh, he can win, then uh, the black people are now willing to vote for him because they think that he can win. That is so true. I remember that rolling out. It is exactly like that. But what is also true is that uh, black people are in denial. They, they are in denial about that. They are all thinking that they were on board for uh, President Obama right at the beginning. But none of them were on board for President Obama. But if you tell them, no, no, you were going on the white team, they will just argue you down like nobody's business. But I really wasn't in the politics then, so I wasn't even paying attention. But what I can say is that uh, I, I really don't, given, given the culture of white people, I just can't. Yeah. They're never going to vote to have themselves in a subordinate position to a black man. I never believed that they voted for President Obama. I don't know how he was selected, but I never believed that. And, and you know, but, but they all said they did. But this same thing that happened with Donald Trump. And this time I was paying attention. I was working as a judge inside the polls. And I was campaigning for people outside the polls because I'm just like that. But, um, they said they weren't going to vote for Trump, but I actually saw them killing themselves to vote for Trump, you know, and the news is saying they weren't. So, no, no, white people were just running around, grinning, patting themselves on the back, saying they voted for President Obama, when all I could see on television were lines and lines of black people, lines and lines of everybody but white people voting for President Obama. And then when I, all I saw, and I think they're just lying. And then they were also lying when they said, oh, not voting for Donald Trump. They misled everyone. They killed themselves to get in there and vote for Donald Trump. So, I mean, I just, I just think they're lying both ways. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. Take uh, excellent care of yourself. I know it's that season for people to be under the weather and what have you. I hope you are feeling right as rain by the next time we hear from you, Karma. Uh, Thomas in New York? Thank you. For sure. Thomas in New York, were you going to chair? Have you heard? Yes, sir. Good evening, Gus. Good evening to the callers. Um, I must confess, uh, I just called into the show. Um, I was really calling in because I finally got caught up on last week's episode and I had some critiques of the book. Um, I'm on my way to the plantation now. Um, and I want to know if I could share them with the, with the family, please. Proceed. Okay. Um, first, I wanted to say the female caller asked last week, she asked you the question, um, if the DNC learned their lessons about putting a white female up against a white male with mochismo and represents RWS, or racism, white supremacy, more than the female. And uh, I just wanted to answer that question before I gave my critique, if I can. Um, you know, I look at it like any 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 white person talking about racism as directly as Trump did, um, regardless of gender, uh, regardless of political position, would be unbeatable in an election. Uh, he went straight to the wells in theory. He talked about white supremacy from the standpoint of uh, white genetic annihilation. Um, it, 
in my opinion, it was over when he said that um, the Mexicans are reaping our women. Um, brought back a lot of chillman memories um, from reading that book. I believe we were reading the book at that time when he said it, and um, we were we were making comparisons to that. And um, blacks that heard that, what they see is they hear is school sex, um, the rape of the women. But whites who hear that, they hear, you know, that's genetic annihilation. Um, of course, whites can't mix with Mexicans and still exist as whites. Um, so I just don't uh, think that's why um, Trump won. And I believe if Hillary had that same mindset of um, these Mexicans are raping our women, if that she came out with that same thing, that same logic, and sold it to the people, she would have um, been unbeatable as well um, to the book. Um, first, I wanted to say they don't put black people on TV that talk accurately about racism. In fact, the only time black people qualify for mental health is when they go on TV and talk accurately about racism. Um, um, they get labeled as crazy. You know, how dare they? You know, like um, Kanye is right now. Um, when he spoke very accurate about George Bush, and now he's crazy. So, um, this um, Gwen um, had be on the platform she's on. Um, she's been completely compromised. She's not going to be allowed to talk about racism. So from reading, hearing the text um, thus far, and I don't know if you feel the same way, Gus, and the other quotes, but it's like, um, it sounds like a textbook. You know, it sounds like um, you're watching the news, sort of. Like if you turned it off and just listened to her, it's like watching her on Channel 13. Um, it, it's almost like... Um, you know, propaganda in a way. And um, she's telling a story about the 2008 election, like how white people would want that story to be told. It's not um, not really authentic. She's not giving her opinion. It's pretty much like reporting the facts, which I, I hate in a book like this. Um, I would love that she had given more of her opinions and um, let her position on some of these cases show out instead of just reporting it just like how she would on the news. Um, I disagree with other callers because um, I don't think that she wrote this book for white, um, for black people at all. Um, I, I don't think no whites or um, um, upper echelon blacks. I believe the consensus is niggas can't read or don't read. So um, they know that if they want to put information out, they could just put it in a book and we'll never find it, um, most of us. So I don't think that she wrote this book for black people at all. I think she wrote this for white people. So this is the this is a black reporter of every prominence, um, and this is how she reported what happened in 2008. And 30 years from now, a white person reading this, they're going to think this is how it happened. However, um, I think that what she's left out thus far, and I haven't heard this week, was um, in Trump's election, it's been very race-orientated. Um, but when it comes down to being race-orientated toward black people, um, directly toward black people, um, so, um, nothing tops Obama's 2008 election. First with him, Hillary, and our racist antics, and then him going against McCain with um, Sarah Cowbell Palin's over there and her racist antics, two white females. So I think that... Um, you know, we don't need a book to tell us about what happened in 2008. We kind of remember 
Um, if you talk to any black person about it, they'll start bringing out, hey, yeah, I remember that. Um, I think this was definitely written for white people. And um, I think that that's why she has a lot of anti-blackness in this book, like um, how she brings out, she points out the um, Shirley Chisholm. Um, she's calling we went Uncle Tom women and all this stuff. And um, she made a point to point out the Reverend Wright situation and, of course, the Jesse Jackson situation. But she's not pointing out all the recent incidents thus far that, like, uh, McCain having to stop his rally and tell the white people to calm down because they were like, we want to kill him, man. He's a jihadist and all of that. She hasn't pointed that out yet. Um, I'm mute my line. Thank you. Oh, I do remember that at that rally where the whites, they were, uh, it was like a Trump rally, <laughs> but it was John McCain and in 2000, they have video of that. I bet it's still, uh, on YouTube and some other sites that folks, if you, uh, go back and look, but I do remember that from 2008, but that's so interesting. Cause that was, uh, my sentiment, like exactly, uh, in terms of the book and how it reads. And I didn't, uh, hear, I mean, I, I heard Gwen Eiffel report. Uh, you can still hear they have, you know, reams and reams and reams uh, of archives, video and audio footage. But I didn't listen to her like on a daily basis uh, or even a monthly basis. Uh, I didn't listen to her uh, give the news. So I'm not like I'll cut. this is like in the past month, I guess this is the fourth one. So the past month or so that we've been reading this book, this is the most that I have like listened to. Gwen Eiffel in my life and it feels like yes someone is like reading me a news report like and and they're reading the newspaper it's not just you know because it sounds like her on the news but it sounds like someone reading a newspaper not someone uh reading a book uh to me about a subject matter uh and reading like the rape propaganda the the racist propaganda of how whites would want us to interpret what happened in 2008 like that's exactly uh what it sounds like uh to me just because it's so uh i can't even say given the facts just because particularly now like looking at this book i I just can can only say it uh repeatedly this book has aged really really bad and i think that's because it is propaganda it's not you know given a, a more accurate uh interpretation of what happened i think if you if you do that that's how in my view you end up with classics that's how you end up with a book we've read a lot of books way past the time when they were written and it still had an impact it was still relevant uh we've done that for a lot of the books uh, that we read. In fact, the book that we read before this, Lothrop Stoddard, was written almost a hundred years ago, and I don't remember too many people saying, "Wow, this book has aged really bad." <laughs> like I think it provided a lot of insight into the behavior of white people, and even the election right now with Donald Trump. I think we were right on time with the book. I cannot. I can only say, reading this book now and going into Donald Trump, like wow, it just really magnifies. Um, it's just not an accurate assessment uh, of, you know, what took place. And I think I've I've said that point and I think it should be echoed about uh, I've said this book. It spends a lot of time on, you know, black people disagreeing or black people who didn't support President Obama. Uh, I remember that. I remember Michelle Obama said that that black people at first were not uh, coming out to support or vote for president obama because they had the suspicion that white people would be racist and would not uh support him for president and so they waited to see what white people were going to do and once they saw that white people were got uh, got behind him then they went out to vibe michelle obama has spoken about that publicly you can go 
go back and find that too. She said all that. Um, so I mean, yeah, that's that's not really strange or odd. Uh, and and I guess the thing above all of the fighting, regardless of what Jesse Jackson said about cutting off his nuts, and you know they talked about that ad nauseum for a really long time, uh, Reverend Wright or any other squabbles that took place between black people who were going to vote for him or black people who were not going to vote for him black people came out in record numbers two times in a row to vote for president obama like that's the thing that should you know be highlighted more than anything else after all of that it did not deter black people from coming out in huge numbers uh, across demographics to vote for him twice uh, and i believe they uh, set another record in 2012 where they came out in even bigger numbers black voters uh, to make sure that uh, President Obama stayed in the White House, uh, you know, whatever, whatever those votes are worth to that effort. Uh, but, yeah, I just I feel like that in conjunction with uh, it's really minimized. Like Dr. Welsing, that was something she used to talk about all the time. Uh, that's in Carol Anderson's book. She's also a black female. Uh, White Rage, which in my view is a much, much, much more accurate book that we maybe should have read. Uh, but she's still alive. That's why we read this book because when I was passing. But uh, in that book, she too makes a big deal because it should be the amount of death threats that President Obama faced. And she even goes into detail uh, in Carol Anderson's book, White Rage. She talks about how they had to start the security detail for President Obama very early uh, in his campaign because he was getting so many racist death threats. Uh, and this was all the way through. I remember it was a, a white group. They had said that they were going to kill. Uh, I think it was they were going to kill 88 black people on their way to the White House to assassinate President Obama. This was like uh, October of 2008. This stuff was going on all the time. White elected officials uh, getting caught sending emails and stuff with uh, the White House with watermelon patches and Kool-Aid like this was every day uh, going down. And I just feel like that's been greatly minimized and really just amplifying yes black people couldn't agree and black people had all these generational squabbles and sandpaper conflict about whether they were going to vote for him or stick with hillary clinton and uh just really removing the focus uh from the problem racist man racist woman and racist child and i gotta get them in because it was white children riding the bus the day after he was elected uh talking about we're gonna assassinate obama and kill him and all this stuff it was rampant it was Life. It was every day, and this book just doesn't really give any attention to that at all. Carol Anderson, White Rage, she does not. She gives adequate uh, attention to all of that. Uh, some of the quick things, I'm so glad, 1880, uh, 1842, she pointed out the use of the term fair, and particularly the way the term fair was used. It's exactly, it goes right to the point about why I say this term sh uh, should not uh, be used it, it actually made several of the points that I've been making uh, throughout the discussion of this text, uh, where the first time she pops up, she uses the term fair. It is bottom of the paragraph. So this is chapter eight, uh, where she says, oh, she's talking about Walter White with the NAACP and he could pass as a white person. That's how he did. Uh, some of his work, uh, he would go down into the South to investigate when a black person was lynched and white people just thought he was white, too. So they would just give him all of the information. But she says uh, even Walter White, the founder of the NAACP, who campaigned against the lynching and in favor of equality in education, was deemed inauthentic in some quarters because of his fair skin, not because he's pale or uh, light complexion. It's because he has fair skin. And that's why I've said that that term. 
it's massively uh, incorrect uh, to use a term that is equated with just justice, logic, correctness, uh, white, suggesting all of those things are equal to uh, white. Uh, and it just it's totally, totally incorrect and kind of substantiating what I've said. It seems like a lot of the people that are recognized as these breakthrough people. Uh, it seems to be that an element of their set success, and she even says it here, is that some white people are comfortable seeing, thinking of them as biracial. And that has been flagrantly, explicitly uh, the case with President Obama. Uh, I don't know as much. I haven't followed Cory Booker as much because he doesn't get the same level uh, of national attention. But I know it certainly is the case uh, with President Obama, and it seems to be the case with some of these other people. She even says that uh, explicitly in the book. Um, I also thought the word straddle. I was reminded I wrote an essay. I linked it for the report, uh, the program we did earlier this week on uh, racist mothers and biracial daughters put biracial in quotes, uh, but sad interracial relationships are sad. And that is an acronym. Uh, the first D is divided loyalties. And I had a non white person who's married to a white person. That's exactly what she said to me. She had divided loyalties when it came to racism because she's married to a white person. And I've said, that's the pattern. If it's a non white person, you can see this amongst non white people, period, where they have divided loyalties and sometimes defend white people. My observation, it's even more acute if that non-white person, if they have a white parent, if they're in some sort of sexual arrangement with a white person, particularly if they are married, have had a child with a white person, it's especially acute. That's such a strong emotional tie and uh, straddling. We've heard so much of that about these breakthroughs. A lot of these breakthroughs who have a white parent or married to a white person, President Obama, Harold Ford, Cory Booker, straddling. That's the word straddling the racial divide. To me, it seems very much about having divided loyalties. Uh, sometimes I'm about appeasing these white people and defending them. Sometimes I might, you know, sound like I'm looking out for black people. Um, let's see. Uh, I, she has a line here talking about President Obama, where she says, and in much of the black community, however, this meant that white people liked Obama, which in itself seemed to render him an object of suspicion. I have said that. Malcolm Minister Malcolm X said that explicitly, and I agree. And I talked to uh, an admitted white supremacist, uh, David Allen. He's at the University of Washington up here. All agree with the same logic. As long as we have a system of white supremacy, anything that makes white people happy, anything that they're giddy or excited about, victims of racism should be suspicious, period. That's off top. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad or something is wrong with it. But if they are excited about it, you should definitely take close inspection uh, because it likely will benefit the system of white supremacy in some way, shape, form. Um, let's see, what else did I want to get in quickly before we get ready to wrap thing up? I too found it offensive. It's seeming like President Obama's appreciation of his blackness being connected to basketball. I just found that absurd. That's the sort of thing if a white person said it would be slam dunk, that's racist white supremacist. And I think that's not me. I think most non-white people, that would be the position that they would take, even if they didn't study racism. That just seems so uh, flagrant and stereotypical. Um, the whole act, it just reminded me, we had Stuart Buck on the program, who is a white person, his book, Acting White, where he puts forward the, the, the just based on the evidence and his research, that that whole phenomenon of acting white, that that is a product of what they call school integration, that you did not hear black people who were intelligent, 
gifted scholars, scientists before quote unquote integration, you never heard them being referred to as acting white because they were doing well in school, that that just was not the case. And that only became a very, very uh, recent uh, thing. And that, that's what his whole book is about, that whole phenomenon, how it happened, when it happened and how that is directly uh, connected, related to quote unquote school integration. Um, I think. I can't. Oh, and I also I thought it was interesting, particularly Thomas in New York saying that uh, Miss Eiffel, she didn't share too much personal. It seemed like she was just trying to be a journalist and be, quote unquote, objective, which is not the case. But one moment where she did lean in a little bit, where she said she uh, she's um, she's writing about uh, all of the critiques, I guess, that uh, President Obama got for being not black enough. And she's talking about Michelle Obama, who rejected all that and Michelle Obama being uh, melanated and born in the U.S. and blah, blah, blah. where she says, uh, stop all that nonsense. Uh, but Michelle Obama also remembered other children telling her as she was growing up that she talked like a white girl matter. And this is in quote, right? So in quote, this is back to Gwen Eiffel speaking. Matter of fact, I remember that too. I think that gets grossly flagrantly overblown in a system of white supremacy where whites are terrorizing us all the time all areas of people activity and calling us names. So we're getting verbal abuse from them too all the time. The amount of focus and attention on a black person saying you're acting white. This is, I feel like this has been uh, a common rallying call from the Obamas, both of them, because I've heard both of them talk about this repeatedly that, Oh my gosh, black people being teased for reading a book or acting white or speaking correct grammar. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen. It is a product of white supremacy, but I'm saying if I had to give a list uh, because I faced that critique as well in my life, if you had to, if you gave me a list, right, and said, okay, you can write down all of your P's, problems, difficulties that you've experienced, that is not on Gus's list at all. That list could be 50 items long, 100 items long. That is not there and I just to me it seems like a, a the same pattern of the the book is focused on black people in conflict with other black people which I can end by saying in my experience that tends to be the type of thing that white people enjoy for entertainment purposes reading about black people squabbling with other black people maybe that gives a clue about who this book was intended for maybe not I'm very comfortable ending there we'll be back next week uh, we did our three hours so we will let it ride there we'll be back tomorrow for the compensatory call in uh, we'll be grand to hear folks uh, thoughts uh, last week of 2016 we'll be here at eight, uh, 9 9 p.m. Eastern 8 p.m. Central 7 p.m. Mountain Time and 6 p.m. Pacific that's tomorrow the last day of 2016 uh, if you have any thoughts comments uh, observations feel free to drop an email and we can uh, read your commentary uh, as we continue if it's related to this book or if it's something else we can you know just share that tomorrow I uh, hope folks will remain safe if you're going out to do any celebrating or anything uh, over this weekend those sobriety checkpoints are going to be in full force uh, if you consume any alcohol, I would encourage get to one spot and stay there. Uh, race soldiers, they're already out. Whether they have a badge or not, they're already out making problems for us. This weekend, they are going to be especially thirsty, uh, looking to get any violations, tickets, anything. So I would recommend uh, get someplace, stay there. If you got a party and celebrating all that stuff, plan all that out in ahead so that you can have a code for how you're going to do that without creating new problems uh, gain sobriety would be best on the conditions of white supremacy 
Uh, with that, we will catch you all in about 24 hours. Uh, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Context of white supremacy signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Hey, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.